joining us on the Path Radio Mix online. And to get there, type in thepathradio.com. That's thepathradio.com. And enjoy free streaming music all day long. That's it. thepathradio.com. All right, now let's get to the main show, the monthly social podcast with me, your host, Guido Perino, as you go on with Guido. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the monthly social podcast for September. Joining us today, Canadian legend, reggae and blues, multi-Juno-nominated artist, Jay Douglas. We've got Jason Bro from Patron Heart Tattoos talking about getting inked. Lead scientist Mark Nelson is here to talk about body type science and diet. And then Christiane Wojcik from Kingston Literacy and Skills is going to talk about free training and learning. We'll look at a piece on hybrid working and returning to offices. We're going to listen to a whole lot of music. So let's go. Now, before we get going, a quick word from one of our friends of the podcast, Johnny Prosciutto. Johnny Prosciutto, artisanal, Italian, homemade products. We make it like our grandfather, or as we say, no, no. Naturally cured, old-fashioned, and delicious. The best part? We deliver straight to your front door. We offer free shipping when spending over $99. Order online at johnnyprosciutto.com and stay safe. And when you use the code GOGUIDO, you're going to save $10 off your entire order. That's the code GOGUIDO on johnnyprosciutto.com. We are running low on our Johnny Prosciutto, so we have to get an order in soon. Maybe mid-September, so we have some for the fall, early winter months, I guess. But uh, it's good stuff, so we're going to be doing that. Now, just a little bit of housekeeping before we go on with the rest of the show. What we don't have in the show, and we've got a lot here today, but what we don't have is our typical the four fans talk sports, courtesy of it's not the um, We just have such a, a full show. So we've offloaded that segment. It's available on it's not the which is uh, YouTube based and um, you can get a, a nice visual. And we've had a really good show um, this month there. So um, one of our funnier ones, perhaps opinions may vary on that, but uh, hopefully you can head on over to it's not the and enjoy that segment. Now, there's a lot going on in our show. There's a lot going on outside of our show, too. You know, we've got uh, kids going off to, to school. Uh, that's uh, starting up again this fall. And you, you see some pictures. Parents are loading up their vans. And and there's some happy kids. And there's some sad parents. So uh, just uh, have that awareness, you know, if you're talking to some parents who might be coming empty nesters or, or a change in, in the home. Um, you know, keep that in mind uh, as they go through through those changes with their kids um, as they head off to school. The other thing that everybody's posting online is preserves. Everybody's making preserves. So um, very specifically, tomatoes and tomato sauce. And there's some fantastic pictures that families are posting of, uh, you know, the traditions of, of making the tomato sauce and, and the tomato milling and, and all that stuff. We did it. We did it here at home. And uh, we had a, a load of fun doing that. And, of course, my mom participated via 
um, FaceTime so that she could kind of check and make sure that the process is going as it should. And it has. So between those things and, you know, a few other unexpected things that have happened this summer, I'm going to cover some stuff off in another episode that I want to share with you. Um, it's been uh, a busy few weeks here for me. I've been busy with thepathradio.com as well. A lot of new indie artist music coming through there. Some real genuine uh, artists and um, really dedicated to their music and their craft. So if you haven't had a chance, uh, give it a listen if you have a few minutes. Thepathradio.com. There's also a free app that you can download uh, for iPhones. Uh, gives you access to the music, gives you access to podcasts and some other content. It's free. There's no in-app purchases. Give it a shot and let me know what you think. But for now, in September, I'm super excited. We have a great lineup. So let's get to it because it's a really full show. All right. I would like to welcome to the show three-time Juno-nominated reggae artist, Jay Douglas. Jay is here to give us some insights into reggae music, his journey, and his new album titled Confession. Jay, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Great. I'm just so honored to be here on your show, man, and I just want to reach out and just a pleasant, happy day to each and everyone out there in the land of love. That that is so kind, and I I think I am honored to have you on the show. But hey, we found out we're neighbors, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I Richmond Hill, Toronto, Richmond. Oh yeah, big time neighbors. I like it. That, that makes me even more comfortable. So yeah. But I gotta I gotta ask you something before we get into all the music stuff. I gotta ask you. You're you're born in Jamaica, right? Yes, Montego Bay. Montego Bay. So, yeah. so you decided to come and enjoy the Canadian winters, Jay. Like all those Yeah. Years. Yeah, because my mom my mom came here as a domestic worker. Ah. In the, in the mid-50s. And she came here with other women from all over the Caribbean and work hard and then she brought her brothers. They came here and they became police officers. Then it was my turn, and I came, and then that was very different. What what was the different? What was it? Well, when you live in a tropical island like Jamaica, yeah, the seasons don't get to express themselves like here. Hmm. Here you can see the different seasons and live them. There it's mostly, for example, here in the fall, the leaves are gone. They're going. They're, they become a beauty. They're very colorful. You don't see that in Jamaica. If you see it, it's not that pronounced, mm. you know? And you have warm weather all year. In the winter, it's a little breeze or the current in the sea, but it's not like here. Does it change? You know? Does that did that change anything of how you thought or, or, or created or yeah. did it influence you in any way? Yeah. When I came I, and I arrived, it was very cool. It was <laughs> late October and I just coming through the customs and the questions you have to answer, you know, you're in a different world. And then you go out into the car, they had to bring, take a coat for me. This was a very cool, cool evening. And you notice while you're driving, the leaves are going off the trees. No leaves. So my first question is, 
so why so many trees are dying? <laughs> and and uh, my uncle would say, no, this is fall. Now in Jamaica, we don't know that's fall. We know that's autumn. Right. Yeah, so right away, I realized that this is nature hmm. explaining herself. And all, all, over the years, then I became so in tune to nature by enjoying the different seasons into spring, summer, and fall. You know, as you, as you break that down, Jay, and the people who've lived here all their life or, or don't know any different, it's easy to take for granted, eh? You got a point. Like, when we came here and lived here for so long till this day, oh, man, the stuff we took for granted in Jamaica. Oh, no. <laughs> it, it's true, because we had the beach, the sea, which is God's gift mineral to your body. Yeah. You want to clean your pores. Your, the largest organs of your body is your skin. Now, those pores, pores need flushing. And the best way to flush it is to go to the beach so the salt, the mineral. We took so much for granted. Just like what you're saying. The right. fruits, you know, just to go and pick a mango or an orange, uh, an orange in the morning with dew on it. It's just, now I'm enjoying it when I go home. You want to go pick an orange, go to the soccer bar. <laughs> you know what? So, Jay, you're making me think back. I Many years ago, I was in Hawaii. And, yeah. um, you know, we were on one of these tour buses or whatever. And the tour bus guide says to us, he says, uh, look, we're going to pull up up the road. I'm going to let you off the bus. If you want to go and pick fruit from those people's yards, go ahead and do it. They'll, right, be, they'll be happy to see you pick fruit and eat it. Oh, yeah. And I'm thinking oh, yeah. to myself, this guy's setting us up. Like, we're going to go do this. And you know, somebody's going to come yell at us to, that we're taking their fruit. But, but he said the, the residents, there's so much of it. They're happy to see people come and eat off the tree, like the same day. Just pick it and eat it, which is a different way of life. You can't get any closer to nature than that. Yeah. Very therapeutic. So, Jay, <clears throat> let's, let's talk a little bit about the music. Um, I want to start with reggae itself, um, which I, I believe in. You're going to educate me and some of the listeners, I think, today. Uh, I believe it's, it's, it has its origins in, in Jamaica. Yeah, it does. Okay. Partly. So, partly. So partly. So maybe you'll, you'll explain that a little bit to me. But then what makes reggae music reggae music? Let, let's just start there. Okay. Let's get one thing. Uh, the reason why I did this album Confession blues. It's a blues. You're you're ahead of the game here because I was going to ask you a question about that. So go ahead. <clears throat> okay. Um, all right. Let's put it this way. Had not been for the blues, we wouldn't have had reggae. So I'll save the rest for you. Okay. And but reggae now, with the influence of the American blues, there are three sectors. The influence of the American blues. We had scalp, like. That's early Bob Martin with. <laughs> then they slowed it down to. They slowed it down to. Take it easy. Take it easy. Take it easy. 
No need to hurry. That's rock steady. They slow the scale to rock steady. Then they slow the rock steady to reggae. One love, one heart. Let's get together. So scale, rock steady, reggae. Now the the other two, scale, rock steady. They're dances that were created with these songs, with these beats, Scan Rock Steady. And it was very happy, go lucky, happy, fun in Jamaica, especially that Jamaica just getting their independence from Britain and a lot of happiness. Then the reggae now is a little different. It's like an awakening, it's messages, social, all kinds of different experience in life. You know, it's more reality, consciousness, spiritual consciousness. People living in the ghetto, the experiences, you know, issues, survival. In other words, truth. That's what reggae is, truth. Because the early creator of reggae, Bob Marley and the Whalers, no, including Peter Tosh, Freddie McGregor, all those early uh, Alton Ellis, you know, all those early artists. Burning Spear, culture, all these. They had one thing in common. They were very, they were spiritualists. So the message was very stronger and realistic. And that's where reggae, and with reggae, Reggae is not reggae if it doesn't have a profound sound of the bass and the drums. One represent the brains, one represent the art. Mm. So that's where Sly and Robbie came. And that's where Lloyd Nibs and Lloyd Brevet, bass and drum. Till this day, you need that bass and drum. And that's what they did in Jamaica that bass and drum. If you listen to Bob Marley's song, yeah. listen to the bass and the drums. So we're getting... You can't have a good reggae without proper bass and drums. We got the, we got the deconstruction of reggae, like with, with the three parts, the history, and the meat and potatoes on it. I, I, I didn't know 90% of that. I just listened to the songs. <laughs> so... <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. No, this is very, very interesting. Very insightful. I'll give you another example. Yeah, shoot. Oh, oh, all these music are connected just like you and I. We're connected spiritually. Take it and tell your preacher, man, or whoever. We are connected spiritually. And the spirit has no color and love has no color. The music and us are connected. It's all energy and forces. Yeah. And the sooner we realize this, we can have a healthier and better environment. I love it. Because, because it's important to know where we are and where we're going. Because if we don't know where we're going when we get there, we won't know where we are. And, and important to know where we came from. Yes. Okay, look, right. with, the, with the help yes, yeah. of technology, look, you and I communicate, <laughs> sharing peace and love. And we're nowhere without a certain energy, force, 
and it's called electricity. But it's energy, just like the spirit. And we're bringing, and we're brought together through music, Jay. We're brought together That's through right. music. So, um, listen. You, so, with this, with this in mind, with the energy in mind, with the history of, of reggae that you have with you, when you first came to Canada, and you started performing reggae, if you can recall, was, and I don't know if I'm asking this the right way, but do you think Canada? Do you think here, where you were, where you came to, were they ready for reggae? Were they ready for the message? Was it embraced in the way that you wanted it to be embraced? When I came here, I was placed, I, I got to be the lead singer of a band called The Cool Girls. And I was very, I'm very grateful to the, this day. And in The Cool Girls, you had Everton Pablo Paul that still plays drums with me today. And you had guys like Roland Prince, Nicky Norris, Red Guard played trumpet. Mr. Spence, who played bass, you know, and Jojo Bennett, who was in the band Satellites. He was a member of the Cougars and Trevor Bailey. We could go on and on and on. So when we came, we weren't hearing any Scar Rocksteady reggae in the radio. We would call the number one station here. <laughs> And they would tell us they don't play that kind of music. So we had to tune into Buffalo. <laughs> yeah, WBLK, WFO. Until we were, but one good thing, we had record stores in Little Jamaica yeah. at the time. Eglinton Oakwood, who brought the, the, the records from Jamaica or the rest of the Caribbean. So we would get that until we had a club to play now the West Indian Federation Club at Brunswick College. So you can go there for a meal, especially if you as a Canadian went to the island and you love the meat, the food there, you could go, you could come here and get that food at the West Indian Federation Club. So we used to play dance music on the weekend upstairs. So we started to build a fan and people are coming in. So that's how we helped to launch that music until certain radio station like CFRB started to play it because of <clears throat> a certain artist from Jamaica, Jackie Me Too, you know? And it just started to come out and beautiful Canadian people were very receptive. So it was, it was almost non-existent when you came. Yeah, to wow. a degree, yeah. yeah. And then we had the band I sang with the Cougars. Eventually, we, we got so good in Toronto playing at the big clubs, like Cockdoor and Young Street all over. After a while, no place for us to play. We decide we're going to go on a, a tour, go on the road. Right on. And we went up through the North Country, Barry, North Bay, Northern Ontario. Thank God, that's when I realized how beautiful this country <laughs> is. Oh, then we cross over into Quebec yeah. until we end up in Montreal. And they love reggae. They love the rock city. They love the skate. But we learned to play Motown and all that other stuff, too. Right on. Yeah. Um, Jay, what, uh, what drove you? What, what inspired you to reggae of, above all else? Like, was, was it just, um, was it cultural? Like, when you came over? Like, was that uh, part of your, your culture? Or did something else inspire you to reggae music? 
Yes. The divine guidance of the spirit, Ja. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, you know, first of all, I'm very blessed to be a singer, to be an artist. Yeah. But it's not all on my doing. We're all gifted. We're all given a gift. The world is a big stage and we all have a part to play. And being an artist was just so wonderful. Meeting people all over the world. Mm. Seeing this country inside out, from coast to coast. What a beautiful country Canada is. Natural resources on top. And this all came about because of the gift that God has given me. It's, an, it's, it's, and I went to a good school at Harvard and Bathurst, Central Tech. And that was another experience coming from a little island from Drexel. This is huge, the largest technical school in the Commonwealth. And they taught me well and they helped me with the music there too. And then it's just, it's just the journey. When I would go anywhere and said, I'm from Canada, they treated me so good all over the world. So it sounds like from a spirituality perspective, it's very intertwined for you when it mm -hmm. comes to reggae music. And mm -hmm. in the reggae music, you 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 could advance your spirituality and, and you gave to it what it would give to you. There was a, a give and take between the art itself and the spirituality that seemingly made you happy as you enjoyed all the different things that you saw around you and traveled and met people and were inspired by all those things. Um, well, you couldn't put it in a bed, man. Take it easy with me. Take it easy with me, though, bro. You got it. You got it. That's what it is. Well, you're, you you use the words. I'm just I'm just validating that that's what I heard, Jay. So That's what it is. Yeah. So Until this day. No, and that, that's great. I mean, you know, you talk a lot to artists when we talk about music and we talk about why do you say the things you say? Why do you sing what you sing, you know? And, and sometimes, sometimes things just rhyme. And then other times things have deeper meanings, right? And I think when people listen, and like me too, like I'm a fan, right? I'm a fan and I listen to the different music and I want to know. I want to know what is the artist feeling something when they're, when they're doing that or when they're saying that I want to believe that they're more than just words on paper or, you know, that together they're, they're, they're designing something, creating something. And, and that's what I'm hearing from you. Um, you know, when you take in your environment and, and how things are, are connected for you, Jay. One of my, one of my reggae recording just before COVID was produced by, Chris Butcher from he used to play with the heavyweight brass band, and he we, he produced a song, and it's called Messenger. Right. We are we are a messenger of peace and love. We are children of the Most High, and we are messengers of peace and love. And that's what it is. Jay, is there an event that can be credited? with the arrival of reggae music and, and I'm going to say, I want to say Canada and you can, you can correct me. 
Is it Canada? Is it North America? Like, do I include the United States? Is there an event that we can credit with its arrival here and people going, yeah, man, I, that's, I like that. It's, it's here. Well, you know what? It starts in the UK. Um, reggae, for example, in the early years before Bob Marley started to tour, He wrote a song, it's called I Shot the Sheriff. <laughs> and, and at the time, Eric Clapton was signed to Island Records, and the owner of Island Records is Chris Blackwell, who grew up in Jamaica from he was a kid, but he was born in Britain. He was the one who was responsible for bringing Bob Marley and the Whalers <laughs> to England. And Mr. Blackwell asked Peter Tosh, no, um, Eric Clapton to cover I Shot the Sheriff. And it jumped out of the charts. Big time. A lot of people didn't know it was Bob Marley's song. Oh, wow. Because nobody, no, nobody knew him. Yeah. But the British artists, they were in tune to the reggae. The Rolling Stones, for example, Mick Jagger did a, a Motown cover song, Don't Look Back, that was done by the T Temptations. And he did it with Peter Tosh. Big hit. The British artists, they were the pace setter with introducing the world to reggae. And then it came to the United States and Canada. But the big Bob Marley. So Bob Marley is the is the focal point that sure. that uh, sure. for that transition. Also Millie Small. My boy Lollipop. Those two. Booyah! And all those English artists covering reggae from when? Yeah. But Marley and Millie Small, you know? There are other artists, you know? But the, the Whalers, man. Bob Marley and the Whalers and Millie Small. And, and you have other artists like with Jackie Edwards and other artists, but... <laughs> Bob Marley. Yeah, you you've worked with a long, like you've worked with a lot of um, you know a long list of different reggae stars, and one of them, you correct me again if I'm wrong, was Ziggy Marley. That's that's Bob Marley's yeah. son. I opened. Yes, yes, I opened for Ziggy. So at the at the Phoenix. At the Phoenix. So what yeah. what was your relationship to Bob? Like, I, I, how did you playing with Ziggy come to be? Like, can you give us some insights on on what that was or? All right, before Jay tells us about his experiences with Bob and Ziggy Marley, let's hear from one of our friends of the podcast, Chaser's Juice. Hi, I'm Richard Chase, introducing Chaser's Fresh Juice, a local business in Toronto. We've been in business for over 20 years, initially supporting our local Toronto area and now servicing all of Canada. Chaser's provides fresh organic juices, ingredients, including citrus zests, dehydrated garnishes, and fresh citrus peels to enhance any cocktail or recipe you can think of. We have successfully supplied restaurants, distilleries, crop breweries, and bakeries across the country. Reach out to orders at chasersjuice.com for any questions you may have. We are a customized fresh juice company, and I'm sure we can help you. Thank you. 
Chaser's Juice is one of the best juices I've ever tasted. If you get a chance to reach out to Richard, or there's several restaurants in the greater Toronto area that uh, serve his product as well. So check that out. Now, let's get back to our chat with Jay Douglas, who is telling us about his experiences with Bob and Ziggy Marley. You correct me again if I'm wrong. Was Ziggy Marley? That's that's Bob Marley's yeah, son. I hope yes, yes. I opened for Ziggy. So at the at the Phoenix. At the Phoenix. So what yeah. what was your relationship to Bob? Like, uh, I, how did you playing with Ziggy come to be? Like, can you give us some insights on on what that was? Or uh, I was very blessed to ask to be uh, to be the opening act for Ziggy Marley at the Phoenix, but. I've never met him before until that time, but because I met his dad in the early years, early, early years at studio one recording studio in Jamaica. I met his dad when his dad was just starting audition. So you were both back in Jamaica, met back there and then kind of took the the paths over. Yeah. I met, I met Bob at studio one (laughs) as a young with the whalers. Yeah. Excuse me, because I was there to audition too. Cool. So I met him there, and then after we met again, and we talked and we reminisced. <laughs> he found it funny. We laughed. <laughs> and then years later, you end up opening for Ziggy. And then I told Ziggy the story about it and, and about his dad, stuff he didn't even know. And he asked the cameraman for us to take pictures. Do you have Do you have a story that you could share with us, or? Uh, with who? About with us? Any stories of of you know having met Bob or or playing with Zeke well, or anything anything of the sort? Well, well, we auditioned the same time on a Sunday afternoon, and his song was "Simmer Down." And let me tell you, it was hard to get attention to my song and the others. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Oh Lord! Oh, we had to go back. Another day, man, Simadon was just hot, crazy. And the rest is history, man. <laughs> Big time. Was he, was he as calm when he wasn't singing very, as, uh, as when he was? Very calm. It's amazing. Now I li- every time I listen to the song, I said, man, this guy was way ahead of his time. <laughs> no kidding. You listen to the lyrics of Simadon and he was driven. He was just so driven at that young, early age. He was way ahead of me. No kidding. And the rest of the whalers, Bunny Whale Island, it was interesting. Only if I had the vision to get the camera out on myself. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't matter. Such a rich part of of history to be a part of and and to now yourself have so many um, accolades uh, as well. Um, of which you've been nominated three times for yeah. for a Juno Award. And, yeah. and Junos are for those who may not know, but because maybe there's some folks in, in other parts of you know not in Canada that are listening. Um, they're uh, they're Canadian Award. They recognize musical artists, and you've been nominated three times for for that. What is what does that mean to you? It means that I'm doing something. I'm still I'm alive. Because let me say this, bro. If, if, if I don't get criticized, whether it be constructive criticism or what, yeah. once I'm getting criticized or being honored, that means I'm doing something right. Right. I'm living. 
And it, it's nice to know we have the Juno set up for us here, just like the Grammys. And, you know, and we get to listen and or appreciate our peers, you know? And I'm very honored, man. Yeah. Very honored. Jay, um, in 2020, you were nominated for a song. And th- there's a reason that I'm going to ask you this, because I kind of got drawn to it a bit. You were nominated for a song called Jet, Ch- Jet Children. Yeah. Um, and, and that was in the recording, um, in the reggae recording of the year category. Right. And there's a few lines. Yeah, there's a verse in there. And I, I want to read, read a few lines out for the audience. Yes, and they please. go like this. They say, when you think you've reached the end of the road, beautiful people, please do not lose hope. We must have faith in all situation. We'll fight for mankind and build a strong nation. And the reason that, you know, those stuck out for me was that, um, you know, the world, the world would really need for the next couple of years those words based on what we've gone through with the pandemic. But you put that song out before the pandemic started, right? So do you think people needed that reminder and, and not to lose hope and to have faith? And then having done that and being recognized for that song, what are your thoughts on that as we went through the last couple of years, uh, Jay? Yes, um, thank you for asking. And we're, we're in challenging times. There's no if or but. Even, even Bob wrote a song. And there's a line that said, there's so much trouble in the world. Now, if I'm not a part of the solution, I must be a part of the problem. Mm. And I will say, let there be peace and let it begins with me. Just imagine if you do that, the other man, with love and respect. So someone might be saying, what is he talking about? I can't survive knowing what's happening COVID. Let me say this. We must have faith. Faith has given us hope. In other words, tough times don't last. Tough people will last. Where there's no vision, people will perish. We have to have that vision. Working together. Put ego aside. Let's work together. Let's get it done. We have a lot in front of us steering us. What are we going to do for the grandchildren? Mm. Why would I let my ego (laughs) get in the way? Why would I become so selfish, not thinking of the children, children? They are the gem of the future. So we got work to do, whether you want to face it or not. It's reality. We got work to do, and we can do it with faith. Faith can move mountains. And not only that, everything we do starts with an idea. Yeah, and you know, I think, I think you said earlier, Jay, when we were talking, that the third element, the third element in reggae is that we, we speak truth. And I think in that third element, when, when you talk about those verses and what you just said, your message is, is consistent, which is we're going to start with truth and we're going to have faith and we're going to have hope. And that's what, people, that's what people need. They need to hear the truth, right? 
Yeah. And then and then with that, let's get some faith and hope mixed in. Yes. Right? Especially and send the message. Especially the, especially for the children, yeah. the grandchildren. Yeah. We must lead by example. Why wouldn't I why wouldn't I sing? I want to sing songs of substance. I'm not trying to be no preacher man or trying to <laughs> win. It's reality. Yeah. Reality. Give them hope. They're asking a lot of questions. Yeah. The children are asking us a lot of questions. We better pre- prepare to tell truth. So, Jay, truth, um, you recently put out a new album. Um, and the title of that album is Confession. Yeah. Now, we're going to hear on, on the show, I'm going to play, I think, three songs. We're going to talk about which songs we're going to play, but we're going to hear three songs from it later in the show. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that album? What, what's, the, what's the insight on the title Confession? What's the album about? <laughs> what, what are we talking about here in this album? What are we doing? Okay, okay. we're going to talk about all you mentioned. Yeah. First of all, you, we just talked about hope and faith. My brother... I say to you, I hope you don't mind me calling you. Ah, it's okay. Brother, brother works for me. Yes. Yeah. All these years I've been in the business, I've always wanted to do a blues album. Mm. And I've had offers to do the blues from different labels and everything. But it just didn't work out. And when COVID hit, you ain't do much unless you get a virtual gig. And don't pay much. I can't connect with the live shows like this. <laughs> and then the news. Oh, please stay home. Get your mask. Get your shots. This is serious, man, because we haven't had this in a long time. Yeah. Especially if you go to certain TV channel and they keep giving you that drug. But some stuff were going on, which we didn't understand what's happening. Yeah. And I, I said, well... This is the time I'm going to test faith and the spirit. Yeah. So what do we do? And he says, well, all right. I've, but I was always researching the music, the history. So I was on YouTube when then there was a blues that came up that I remember from when I was a kid in Jamaica by a certain artist from America, Roscoe Gordon. The song is called Surely. My brother, I heard this song from I was knee high in, in Jamaica and Roscoe Gordon. So I said, you know, I love this man. And not only that, I had to put a band together for him to perform at Harbor Front because of a certain promoter. Yeah. You know, David Bernard and Mr. Andrews, they allowed me to. And I put the band together for the great Roscoe Gordon. Surely... I better tell you, that's one of the main reasons we have reggae, I mean, scale, rock steady reggae, because of that man. He grew up with Elvis Presley in the same studio and the Sun label. Oh, wow. Yeah, in Memphis. <laughs> yeah, Rascal. And there's another gentleman whose name is Spots Domino, who sounds blueberry here. Right, of course. He made a song called Be My Guest Tonight. Those two songs are the reason why we got hip hop, what they want to call it now. It's the same thing with. Winter, spring, summer, fall, it goes in cycles. Hmm. But my idea was, well, I better respect this foundation and give them. B.B. King, all these guys, oh, he was great. He died so much. 
you don't hear much about these foundation people yeah. that give us what we have today. James Brown, hip hop. You should hear him early years, you know, Bobby Blue Bland, T-Bone Walker. Oh, yeah, T-Bone, yeah. Amen. Yeah. You know, Ray Charles. Yeah. And I researched all at once. I said, well, and then I had a good producer in Eddie Bullen. One of the best we have in Canada in the world. Lives out Markham from Thunderdome Sound. He says, Jay, let's roll. He says, you don't have COVID, I don't. Let's make music. And we, it took us a little over two years to put this album out. It's all with great foundation blues artists who allowed us to be where we are today. Had not been for the blues, you would never have rock and roll and Elvis Presley, all of it. The blues is the blues, and it ain't nothing but the blues. You know, uh, Jay, you're, you keep revalidating stuff, because earlier we said you got to know where you're going. Because if you don't know, when you get there, you won't know where you right. are. But you got to know where, you, where you've been, and you've done that with this album by respecting the past, by respecting the foundation, uh, by respecting some of the founders. And I think that's important. It's important because... When we do that, I think it'll it pours out into the music. It pours out into um, you know how we perform or, or or what we're what we're providing to the audience. But there's another piece I want to ask you too. And you you, you was, sorry, go ahead. There was a great artist here. He just died the other day, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah, yeah. He, he came from the Southern United States. Right. That's a blues man, right? Look how many great musicians he turned out. Praise to the Ronnie, Ronnie Hawkins. Yeah. Hawkins. yeah. You know, Bob Dylan respected that man to the max. Yeah. All these things are connected. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, you. no. I, and I'm glad you mentioned Ronnie. That was that was uh, a good mention. Um, earlier, again, when when you said you know about the album Confession, and you talked about the blues. So when I started listening to this album, I'm thinking to myself, I'm hearing other things here. Like I know you're reggae, and I know you got the reggae, but I'm thinking, why am I hearing? I'm hearing blues. And there was a question that I was going to say to you. Hey, does blues influence your sound? But then, yes, is, it, is there a little bit of jazz in there too? Yes. Okay, so they're all see, I'm, they're all connected. Here's the thing: I'm deaf in one ear, so sometimes I think I hear things, and I could be wrong, right? My wife says to me, "No, no, you didn't hear that. It's, it's not there." And I say, "Are you sure?" Because like, there, there are jazz in there. There because the blues link to all of them. Ask Louis Armstrong. All of them both sent Louis blues. <laughs> James Brown, all of them, the blues, man. I feel better. I feel better about money. One of Miles Davis' biggest hit is called All Blues. Check it out. They're all connected. So Very much so. And Ray Charles now, that song, that's his very first recording, 1948. He recorded that song, Confession Blues. That's incredible. Yes. And guess what? His, his last name is not Charles. His name is Robinson. Mm -hmm. He signs his publisher of R.C. Robinson. <laughs> foundations. Foundations. So, yeah. so uh, listen, there's, a, there's 14 songs on that album, right? On the new one? Confession. That's right. What, is, there, is there a confession being made here, though? Or, or what? Is it? The, the confession is that I respect Lou's foundation right. because it brought me where I needed to be. Beautiful. 
And, 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 and it's very, very, very strong. Here's something I want to share with you now. Yeah, please. All these reggae international artists, Bob Marley, all these great, you should hear them sing blues. But some, some they, they went reggae. Because, you know, it's just music of the, our culture. But you should hear these guys. You should hear Bob Marley and these guys sing R&B. Hmm. They were influenced by R, uh, 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 R&B act out of Chicago. Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions. Hmm. That's who the Whalers are. That's why the song One Love is an anthem, right? Yeah. One Love, One Heart. Half of that song, One Love, half of that song is owned by Curtis Mayfield. It's not all owned by Bob Marley. He owns a part of it, One Love, the other part, Curtis Mayfield, people get ready. It's incredible that you're a fan of all the history on this. So it's not, you know, you you have, you don't just say Guido is foundation, you're, you're, you live, you're living the foundation. You're a fan of it. And I'm using the past to make myself a better person today. You take from the past. So here's what the reggae, it's interesting what all these reggae artists, they transcend the music. Mm-hmm. The Rolling Stones, all those guys, after they went, before they became big, they went to the States and workshop with the blues guys. Chuck Berry, all of them. They studied them. They hang with them. Then they went back to Europe and they transcended. Right. That's all I'm saying. Transformation. Um, there's a song on the new album. And, you know, your eyes, my eyes kind of go to certain things. It's called I Love Toronto. And um, you, you mentioned Little Jamaica, which you've mentioned. And you express like a real genuine love for, for Toronto. What makes you love Toronto that much that you made a song saying I love Toronto? Because... I am blessed to be living in this great country of Canada. Yeah. Very blessed. Very blessed. I was born in paradise in Jamaica and this, living in another paradise. Where else would I want to live? Everywhere I go all over the world, Hong Kong, name it. I say Canada, Toronto. They made me feel like, okay, fine, great. They love this great country. If there's to be any peace on this planet, at that round table, Canada needs to be there. Hmm. And, and everywhere I go, I look forward to come back home to Toronto. Maybe I love Maybe we should play that one on the show. What do you think? Should we let them listen to I Love Toronto later? Or? Please notice who the drummer is. It's Lionel Lewis. You're aware of who he is? Tell us. He's one of the top drummers in the world now, and he's from Toronto. There we go. He plays with, he's a drummer now in Snarly Poppy. There we go. One of, the, one of the best drummer in the world comes from Toronto right now as we speak. So that's one. We're going to play that one. We'll, we'll, we'll include that one in the show. Produced by Eddie Bullen and, and Andrew Stewart on bass. Come on, bro. <laughs> you got it. So of all the 14 songs, yeah. is there a song, if you could pick one song that you'd want everyone to listen to, what would it be and why that song? Oh, man, that's a deep question. I know. I. You get deep. I, I do. You know what? That's nobody what I, has ever asked. Nobody ever asked. You know what? Say it. I want, did you just say nobody has ever asked you that? Not particularly. You know what? That's, that's the, that's the highlight me. of my interview. They're all great songs, but 
But I'm going to tell you the truth because yeah. I believe in truth. There's a, at the end, there's an acapella. Yeah. It's called Darling, I'm Yours. Yeah. When I started out as a young kid in the business in Montego Bay, I started out on an American Idol show. And I sang with another friend of mine. We were a duet. And we won first prize. We were kids. And our name was, at the time, they called us the Wanderers. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were hot little star Montego band until I had to leave to come to Canada. And I've never seen, seen my friend until I was performing in Rochester, New York. Oh, wow. And he showed up into the, the, the banquet. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> and his name, we call him Buddhas, but his real name is Errol. Yeah. And it so happened that I ended up staying with the music he didn't. But we remained friends, and he just passed away. Oh, I'm sorry last, to hear. I'm sorry to hear. Last year, last year, yeah. with diabetes in Montego Bay, and it was so sad the way he passed away. Very sad. I couldn't go to his funeral. And, and then, if you notice, I said, I could mention his name, and I said, we show gratitude to the Blues Busters. Two gentlemen, Philip James Lloyd Campbell, when we were kids, they taught us harmonies. And they passed away over the years, but they, they were our inspiration. So there's an attachment, and you're the, you're the first person going to find out this. That's why I had to do that, to show my, my friend and to the first set of teachers. Darling, I'm yours. Darling, I'm yours. Yes. We'll include that. We'll, what, we'll play that one on the show too, Jay. Sure you want to do that? Yeah, man. That would yeah. be great. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to do it. It's got, it's got deep connection. Hey, if, if we ask the deep question and you're giving us the deep answer... We want people. Yeah. We want people to go deep with us. So let's. We'll... That's why. And you spoke about it earlier. Yeah. Never forget where we're coming from. Yeah. Don't do that. Always. For me, it's very important that I must say thank you with a smile all the time. Give thanks with a smile. It's not all about me. Beautiful, Jay. So you. you we know where you've come from. Um, with the new album, I know you've played places like Massey Hall and Roy Thompson Hall and like other venues. Um, is there plans to play the album live at some point? Or oh yes, they're making some serious. Uh, album is doing great. Where are we? Thank you. Are we going to be it's, looking at we, like maybe the fall, winter? Or? Yeah, somewhere in the fall. They're talking. They start talking about it. But can you imagine getting emails from Australia, Tans Tasmania? Oh, that's awesome. Italy, all over, response to this album. We're getting so many playlists of people, in, especially in Europe. There's a lot of blues. I didn't know they have so much blues radio shows over there. <laughs> so much blues society. And the Toronto Blues Society, Derek Andrews and his crew here, they, they just gave me a write-up in this month's Maple Blues magazine. I'm there. Oh, Derek Andrews and his crew, they're... Because we have some of the best players in the world on this project. You, you, uh, you have an amazing you know, cast. You have an amazing cast of, of talent there with you. Oh, and, and um, Big Lions, you know, Terry Blurge playing guitar, 
oh, Bobby Shue and sax. And we had, uh, the arms were arranged by Dr. Michael Art as my sax player. And of course, a great producer, you know. I, I hope they listen. I hope they listen to the show and and hear hear you of how much you love them and how much uh, honor you're giving everybody. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank um, you. And when, when you get your list of hey, here's where we're going, let us know and we'll make sure that we share that with the audience yeah. as well. And I, 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 I just want to thank Jazz 911, all of the wonderful people there. They're just doing so much with this album. I just did the interview with with um you, Tom Powers, and so many people are contributing. Right on. So many, so many, so many. So Jay, I I want to thank you. I I mean I've I've probably kept you longer than what you agreed to to talk to me for. So. That's all right. As long as we're talking truth. But, but uh, yeah, this has been a, a huge pleasure. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity. Um, you know, I'm I'm hoping that our listeners hear your message and your insights. Um, I certainly have. Um, is there anything that, you know, I've asked you a lot of questions, but is there anything you'd like to leave us with today before you go? Yes. Life is one big journey. But at the same time, we ought to learn to enjoy the journey before we get to our destination. Don't wait to get there. Enjoy the bird's flying across the highway and the wind, the trees, the animals. Mm-hmm. Please, it's one big, beautiful journey. And please, if there will be chance, you know, you get, get a flat tire, stop, change the tire, continue your journey and be grateful. And I'm grateful. Be grateful to be vertical. I'm vertical <laughs> today. Be vertical today. Later on, I'm horizontal. I'm looking forward to be vertical. But <laughs> thank It's just... Life is for living. Let's live it. Live it. And my final words, let's hug the grandchildren and tell them we love them. Right on. Yes. Peace and love. That is truth from three-time Juno-nominated Canadian reggae icon Jay Douglas. I will have all of Jay's contact info and links to music in the podcast notes. Again, thanks for being here, Jay. Let's end our chat with one of his Juno-nominated songs. Here is Jay Douglas with Jad Children. Jay Douglas, simple with the mirror. Let's keep We must have faith in all situations. We'll fight for mankind and build a strong nation. Our Father gave us, us the gift to keep.
with a song Ja Children you can catch more tunes from Jay later on in the podcast you can also hear them on thepathradio.com now I welcome you to get inked with our next guest Jason Bro from Patron Heart Tattoos on Tattoos I would like to welcome to the show Jason Bro tattoo artist at Patron Heart Tattoos in Kitchener Ontario Jay, welcome to the show. Is it okay if I call you Jay? Jay works. Jay works. I'm okay with that. Thanks for having me. How are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. Hey, so we're going to talk about tattoos. And listen, if I throw acronyms out there that don't sound right or are like false facts, <laughs> just just stop me and go, no, we don't really say that in the, in the tattoo culture because I really don't know any anything about it so um I got you. This is my learning curve too tonight so i got you i got you um so i, I was gonna say we're gonna talk getting inked is that is it is that am i using the right term if i say that oh uh, well uh, a lot of people do use that term let's go get inked uh, some people say let's get tatted some people say let's get acupuncture um, acupuncture wow Ink, incupuncture. Oh, incupunctured. Right? Yeah, some people consider it therapy. So um, they come to us when they're at their highs and their lows, and they get tattoos to help them get through their stuff. So calling it getting inked is relatively new. Um, I guess it's more for the hip crowd. Uh, oh. I don't know if I'm totally down, but hey, it is what it is. <laughs> if they come through the door, that's all good for us, right? So is there a... a- you may or may not know this. Is there like a, an era of tattoos? Like, like is, if inked is a modern term, was there something that we used to say like 20 years ago? Or Yeah, people would just say tattooed. 
Um, there was a point in time where people wouldn't even talk about it at all because it was taboo. Um, we had actually an era of tattoo prohibition and there was laws that prohibited tattooing. So a lot of it was done underground. Here in uh, Canada? In Canada and in the United States, yeah. We oh. had to wait for permission to be able to, and it took a lot of lobbying to legalize tattooing in North America. I did not know that. So we've, we've come a we've come a long way in, in that, uh, in that realm. So uh, yeah. how long, listen, how long have you been in the business? I've been tattooing for about 15 years. I'd say uh, 13 professionally and 15 when I just kind of started to try to figure it out on my own. Um, huh. Before that, I was an addictions counselor. Um, before that, I was into a whole lot of other stuff. So um, tattooing kind of pulled me in a new direction. And at a point when I wasn't sure what to do next, tattooing just kind of fell into my lap. So I was going to say, it, you, um, you started doing it on your own, like just experimenting? Yeah. So unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> you can buy a whole bunch of uh, tattoo equipment online. Um, you can order it. You don't have to have any specific training. They'll ship it right to your door. You could tattoo yourself, your friends, and uh, their friends. Um, and a lot of people think that it's okay to do. Uh, I was one of those people. <laughs> and I quickly learned why I shouldn't do that by seeing some of the reactions to the ink. Now, it only took one instance for me to decide that I wanted to learn professionally. Um, but a lot of people continue to tattoo without any training at all. And, uh, I mean, we find ourselves correcting a lot of that or trying to fix that, those mistakes. So I recommend if anybody wants to learn how to tattoo, they should seek out a tattoo studio rather than go online and order one of these kits to their house. I was going to say, so if you, if you wanted to do that, like it, what's the path to become a professional artist is by trade, by, uh, apprenticeship, uh, well, there's a lot of schools out now that claim that they can teach you how to tattoo. Unfortunately, I don't think that you can learn what we do in a month and a half to two months. Um, it took me two and a half years of training with people who knew what they were doing after trying to train myself because they had to break all of the bad habits that I had formed. Um, you need to learn a lot about anatomy. You need to learn about the layers of skin. You need to learn about cross-contamination and blood-borne pathogens. And uh, before all of that, you need to learn how to draw. So um, <laughs> the easiest way to get an apprenticeship would be to go to a studio and start talking to them and see if you even get along with who might be your, um, uh, what's a good word? Sensei? guide sensei mentor mentor yeah i call all my students padawan Padawan. because if you call them apprentice that's the dark side and we ain't going there (laughs) so so it sounds like you've been in this for a number of years now um and you kind of alluded to it earlier where you said well there was a time when it was taboo um are we at the other end of it now where it's just commonplace like in all areas of life Uh, like like when I was younger, uh, you know, the stigma that I had in my head was that, well, if you ride a motorcycle, you get a tattoo. Um, 
you know, or if you were in a gang, you got a tattoo. But is yeah. that I don't doesn't I don't think that's the case anymore. It sounds like. No, no. You know, we've had like this um, era of enlightenment, I guess you would say, in tattooing where uh, popularity is is now with us. Um, in the late 90s, early 20s, we started to see, or 2000s, sorry, yeah. uh, we started to see a lot of TV shows pop up. And those TV shows at first sensationalized the industry. And then later it showed us what good and bad ink was when we started to see the competition shows. Um, so at first we had a whole lot of people coming in various ages uh, after that. And uh, they would explain why they were getting their tattoo and it was very dramatic. <laughs> and now they come in thinking they know everything about tattooing. So there's, there's good and bad with those shows. They did help us in that uh, it became very popular, but when things get popular, everybody wants to do it. So now you have, probably 50 times more tattoo studios like Toronto itself has over a hundred tattoo studios. Um, Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge, we're looking at around 30 tattoo studios. Uh, Back in the day, there'd be one per city. If you were lucky, Uh, there was a point when tattoos were extremely taboo. Everybody thought you're in a gang. You must be a biker. Um, (laughs) They treated women, especially poor who were tattooed because they, probably weren't living a sound life right uh now perceptions right just perceptions yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, but now like i've tattooed grandmas i've tattooed grandfathers (laughs) i've tattooed pastors i've tattooed uh bikers (laughs) i've tattooed the whole walk and uh the truth is i've met bikers who have no tattoos and i've met pastors who are absolutely covered so So, it's a new era (laughs) <laughs> With all the tattoos you've done, and I, I got a story about a tattoo, like from somebody I knew, but what is the, the, I don't know if I'm asking this question the right way, the longest or the biggest or the craziest tattoo that you've put on to someone? Like, is it, is it like a whole body? Is it a limb? Is it like, what's the, what's the wildest sort of tattoo that you've had to do? The, the most I've done for one person was two sleeves and half of his back, uh, we agreed to what's do the, that. What's much. a sleeve? What's a sleeve, uh, Jay? So basically, that's full coverage. So I know you can see me. Your people yeah. can't see me, but this is kind of a sleeve where my whole arm is done. Whereas, like, if you do sections of your arm, that's not really considered a sleeve. Me, I have right to my hands, wow. and my whole arm wow. is just covered. So a sleeve would be from shoulder to wrist. Um, and so I did two sleeves on the gentleman and I did pretty much his whole back. Wow. I traded for a Harley Davidson and, uh, not to perpetuate the stigma, but, <laughs> but I wanted a bike and he wanted some tattoos. So we made a deal. So how, how long does a back and two sleeves take to do? I get, maybe it depends on what you're putting on there or. It really depends what you're putting on, whether you're doing just black and gray tribal, um, very intricate work or very sparse open work uh, where there's uh, negative space. Uh, this particular tattoo probably took me around 50 hours to complete. Wow. So multiple sessions, like, hey, do this, come back, do this, come back sort of thing? Right. So he would come in, we, we outlined one whole arm, then he came in and we outlined the other whole arm, and then we had multiple six to seven, eight-hour sits of filling all of that in. Um, 
So let's say I want to I want to talk a little bit about the process. So like in, in this case, you had someone go, yeah, I want two sleeves and a, you know, and my back done. Uh, let's say I contact you and I, I want a tattoo and I, and I tell you that. What's the next step? Well, there's a few ways it could be done, right? Like uh, some people, they call us, they want same day. Uh, we call those walk-ins. So they just want something very small. They're like, do you have any time? And it's always subject to availability. So if we have time, we'll say, come on in. And we'll work with them on a person-to-person basis and try to get their work figured out for them. Uh, some people prefer to pick flash designs where they could be pulled from a book. They could be pulled off of our wall or pre-designs that we made that we're hoping to do. And some people just like specific artists and want to get like anime or their favorite cartoon character. Um, We also do custom tattoos. So that means that that process is a little bit longer because it would involve a sit down where we would want to have an in-person consultation. That way we could get to know the person, get to know what they like, what they don't like, talk about potential costs and time and all of that stuff. So there's quite a few ways we can do it. Uh, We do it over the phone. We do it uh, through Facebook and through Instagram as well. And uh, thanks to modern technology, we can also have them booked through uh, those platforms as well. So um, do you ever, like me, I don't have any tattoos. If I come in and, and, and ask for something more significant than a little goldfish, do we have a conversation at all? <laughs> like, do you at all hesitate and kind of go, oh, this guy's going to drive me nuts later? <laughs> yeah. You know what? <laughs> you got a you gotta, good, good thing for me is I was a counselor before. So I have a little bit of temperament when it comes to working with the public. Um, but not every artist has that tact. So, I mean, it's going to be a different experience person to person. One of the things I always recommend is check out the artist. Um, do you even like the artwork that they have on their Instagram. Uh, typically that's their brochure of this is what I like to do. So you would want to check out the artist's work. Sitting with the artist and talking with them will give you an idea of whether or not you want to work with them. Um, again, like I said, there's so many tattoo studios. There's such a broad range of talent nowadays. You could throw a rock in my city and hit the next artist and they have just about as much talent as me. Uh, I'm not going to say I'm better or worse than anyone, but we're blessed in this city. We got a lot of um, amazingly talented people. So if if I don't know how to work with the person, somebody's going to know how to work with the person. So it, it's good to attach sentiment to your tattoo. Yeah. That way, in the long run, um, <clears throat> you're not going to regret it. Uh, the the more spontaneous the tattoo. The more likely you may be asking us about a, a cover up in the future. Oh, really? Have you? So have you? Have you had some of those instances in the past? I have. Yes, I, I have. have. Uh, some spouses' names. Uh, oh, some, <laughs> some people <laughs> like cars that they eventually don't like, and uh, I knew a guy who loved Kawasaki's. Now he's a Harley man. So. <laughs> yeah, you never. So that know. must take some creativity to turn a Kawasaki into into something else, right? All cover-ups are tricky, period. Um, If they're done well, if the previous tattoo was done well, it becomes harder to just cover it up, and it becomes more of like a a camouflage. Um, So you got to work with the original design and try to incorporate it into the new design, which oftentimes is much bigger than the last. Um, 
Worst case scenario, we send them for laser and laser costs way more than the tattoo procedure. It hurts a lot more and you'd have to undergo multiple sessions to remove what, what that. Does, uh, what does laser do when you say that, send them for laser? What is that? So there is now laser tattoo removal. Oh. Um, it's a ultraviolet condensed laser. So they, they use this ultraviolet light to disperse the ink and uh, your body then can remove the pigment and you send it out. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so let, listen, on that note, let's talk a little bit about when someone gets a tattoo, what exactly like is happening? Like I, I don't, I don't quite get the thing. So is ink being injected into my skin? How does it stay there? How does it not bleed? Like when I bleed, bleed out like a watercolor, like what's, what's actually happening? Well, there's a few things that are happening during the process. Um, unfortunately diet can affect it. Um, and, and how healthy a person is can affect it. If they don't eat before they come, if they drink before they come, this could affect how their tattoo heals. Uh, say they drank a whole lot the night before, when they come in to get tattooed, they're going to bleed quite a bit during the process, and it's going to make the skin a little bit more traumatized than the end. Um, say we're working with a healthy person who drinks lots of water, uh, the tattoo process should go pretty good. Um, we are definitely injecting ink into your skin. So we use a needle, which uses the tattoo pigment, which is in a carrier fluid. We breach the top layer of skin. So you have three layers of skin, your epidermal, your dermal, and your subcutaneous. We're trying to inject into the top two layers, or at least in between the top two layers. If we breach past the secondary layer, and hit the subcutaneous, then what happens is what we call a blowout. Um, in that case, your tattoo doesn't look as clean on the surface, and it even has what looks like a permanent bruise underneath. Um, so for the sake of tattooing, it's not like a hypodermic needle where you inject the needle through all layers of skin and then into a vein or into muscle tissue. We just kind of try to dance just under that first layer of skin, which is about as thick as your nail is if you flick it up and down. Um, if we go past that, then the healing is going to take longer. It's, it, and the tattoo probably will age very poorly. So you, it's interesting because I said to you, I had this one tattoo example. I knew this fellow who got, I don't remember what the tattoo was about, but he had his entire leg, his entire outer leg tattooed in, um, for like three days later, it, it was like bleeding and, and it looked like uh, there was some, I don't know, something coming out of his tattoo. It didn't look healthy. His entire leg was like all red and, and he was bleeding. And, and, um, and it's, what's interesting to me is that when you said, if you drink before you get your tattoo, and he yeah. had drank quite a bit before he went and got this tattoo, and I'm yeah. like, oh, that's the connection. That's probably what has started to happen for him, maybe. Maybe? Maybe. Uh, secondly, what could have happened, what that sounds like to me is a staph infection or staph. Oh, wow. Um, so that would have been the beginning of his body starting to push out all of that ink. Um, he may have had to use antibiotics to cool oh, off wow. the, the leg. 
And uh, it, it probably was a very painful situation for him. So if proper care isn't taken by the individual after they leave the tattoo studio, there is a very good chance that infection and other things can happen. After all, we are opening up your skin. Uh, we're not opening it up in the sense that we are cutting you, but it's kind of like you just got a road rash. So we, we talk specifically about aftercare, how to take care of your tattoo. We give out forms to take home that uh, explain exactly how you should take care of your tattoo. And we even leave it open for our clients to contact us should they see any complications so that we could work with them. And in worst case scenario, tell them, listen, uh, go see your doctor. <laughs> that, but you know what? That that actually sounds, uh, it, it makes me sound comfortable that you've got an education process and that, um, you know, they're, you're keeping in contact with the person and there's some follow-up. It sounds like if they need the follow-up. So as opposed to, here you go, done, see you later. <laughs> right, yeah, no, we appreciate repeat business, right? Yeah. So if we, uh, if we just kind of push people out the door and didn't care about them, then maybe we don't deserve to continue doing what we do. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question and you probably, I, I know you get asked this question a lot. I know, I know you do, but I, I'm going to ask it and then I'm going to say how much. So, so people say that getting a tattoo hurts. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a new, a newbie question. Does it hurt? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. How um, much does it hurt? <laughs> well, I guess that really depends what part of the body you're getting tattooed. Uh, me, I have both my feet tattooed. Wow. Uh, they really hurt. Um, I had my chest from my neck to my belly button tattooed and the sternum area of my chest really, really hurt. Uh, my hands, I did both my hands the same day and I thought there was a brief moment when I saw God, um, <laughs> uh, my rib cage was just about the same. I, I kept asking the gentleman to stop and he goes, you know, I'm going to charge you more. <laughs> we keep breaking. Um, so it really depends on the what part of the body you're getting tattooed. Um, but yes, they definitely hurt. And uh, women almost always seem to do better than us guys do. <laughs> What's up with that? I don't know. I don't know. I just think they're tougher all around, period. <laughs> but uh, women keep coming back and the guys, they faint and they pass out. And <laughs> that would be that would be me <laughs> just put, just put mats all around the all around the chair or, or wherever it is so does like when you the hurt part is it hurt during or hurt after both all right great both. um so you are getting jabbed with needles and those needles move at about um 100 cycles per second um, so by the end of your tattoo, you have about a million or more puncture holes in your skin. Um, if someone really takes their time, then your skin is quite damaged by the end of the tattoo. It's going to take longer to heal. Uh, we call that overworking the skin. Um, if that happens, then you're going to have a more painful heal than not. Um, say you don't wash your tattoo properly. You don't give it the time to, to dry that we recommend, or you don't use the creams properly, um, then you're in for a rough ride as well. So let's let's um, talk about that. Let's talk about that, Jason. So, because I was going to say, well, is there anything special you need to do after you get a tattoo? 
it, it sounds like there's some immediate care that you would have to do. Um, yeah. And and let's tell me what that immediate care is. And then is there something I would have to do long term? Okay, so um, immediate. So we recommend eight to 12 hours with a bandage on. Uh, some people, they'll leave the studio, they'll take the bandage off right away. We, we hate this. <laughs> um, this gives all kinds of opportunity for bacteria to get into the open tattoo that has not even been washed before you get a chance to wash it. So we recommend at least 8 to 12 hours with the bandage on. When the bandage comes off, you have to wash it right away. Uh, I recommend to all my clients that they use a hand soap like Dove or Ivory. And uh, I ask them to wash the soap before they use it on their skin. Some people find that ironic, me asking them to wash the soap. But from packaging or just sitting on the side of your tub, the soap can develop bacteria. So we just recommend that you wash the soap a couple times and uh, rinse it in the process. By doing that, you're also washing your hands um, and making your hands clean so that you can touch your tattoo. Some people say you can use a washcloth. If you use a washcloth, you should use one that has not been used for anything else. And it should be in the middle of your pile so it hasn't had time to collect dust. Um, I just like using my hands. So I'll wash over the surface of the tattoo and then I'll rinse it and then I'll lather up the soap and I'll use the lather again to wash over the surface of the tattoo. I'll repeat that procedure three times. I never recommend that they use the soap directly on their skin because bar soap can have little nicks and cuts in it and that can grab at the tattoo and create trauma that we don't want to see. So by just using your hands and the lather of the soap, you can really feel your tattoo, whether it still has the slime from the Vaseline, your blood, and your plasma uh, all needs to be removed. Yes, there is a difference between blood and plasma. Uh, plasma is the clear liquid that your body spits out to create thick, chunky scabs to try to seal up your wounds so that nothing gets into your body. Um, by removing all of this and then dabbing it dry immediately afterwards, you trick your body. Um, your body thinks, oh, my, my tattoo's dry. That means I created a scab. I don't need to spit more plasma to the surface. I don't need to try to heal it more. Uh, we recommend a 24-hour to 48-hour period with no uh, aftercare. Washing your tattoo daily, always dabbing it dry. Because if you let it air dry, your body thinks my wound is reopened. And it will try to spit plasma to the surface to create a thick, chunky scab. What we want is more like a sunburn. Uh, you've had a sunburn, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So it just kind of flakes and falls away and you're good, right? That's what we're hoping for. Wow. Uh, uh, after the 24 hours, you wash your tattoo once a day, depending how active you are. You might want to do it twice. Uh, always dabbing in between. And then leaving it alone for three or four hours, never adding cream right after you've gotten it wet. And then for aftercare, we just recommend plain unscented hand cream. No uh, eukinacea, no aloe vera, um, no polysporin, <laughs> no, uh, they used to say preparation H. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, so no cocoa butter, no shea butter, no oatmeal, none of that stuff. Just plain wow. unscented hand cream two to three times a day. And you should be healed within a week. 
Um, if they don't listen to all of that, <laughs> then you're looking at two to three weeks healing. Time. Wow. And now after that, that healing has completed long-term, just regular, hey, I can shower. I don't have to put any special moisturizers. It's just, it's part of me. I got, I. That's it. That's it. That's it. Uh, then, it then it's you. The only thing you would have to worry about long-term is how active you are in the sun. I was going to um, say, like, so I've seen some tattoos. They, they look a little faded or... Um, you know, like I have, a, I have a friend. He had a tattoo, probably a popular one, the Superman. You know, everybody got like the little yeah. Bon Jovi Superman tattoo there, yeah. and the blue in the in the thing was a different blue a number of years later when I saw it. Yeah. Um, so it was like the color had changed. Is is that normal, or was that not enough color in the tattoo to begin with, or what what should be happening there with the color? So a, a few things can happen depending on your artist. For one, if they're really good at what they do, it'll take longer for the color to have any changes. Um, but it could also depend on the pigment or the company that they're using to source their pigment. Um, if you're a sunbather, uh, you're going to wreck your tattoo. Uh, it doesn't matter if you use sunblock. It doesn't matter if you use a UV block, sun, uh, an ultraviolet light burns the tattoo and slowly dissipates it quicker throughout your body. Now, over time, our body naturally just sheds skin. Um, half the dust in your house, if you didn't know, is dead skin cells. Um, this is why getting those dead skin cells into your fresh tattoo is not a good thing. So, uh, But over time, what happens is as we uh, lose those layers of skin, we also lose some of the pigment that was packed into the skin. So it will, over time, appear lighter and lighter. And it's just because it's now raising to the surface with the new skin that's forming underneath the tattoo. Because uh, remember I said we try to deposit between the two layers. Yeah. Uh, your top layer is taut. It's tight. It's weathered. It, it, it experiences environment. Um, and it sheds away as it's damaged. The skin underneath where we inject the skin this eventually becomes your new skin. So as this skin pushes forward, you lose a lot of the pigment that was placed. Um, that's, that's kind of an interesting process. Do you, does, the, does that affect the detail of the tattoo ever? It can. Uh, so the thing is, and what a lot of people don't understand, is tattoo pigment always remains liquid within your body. It never dries because your body is 75% water, it continues to keep the tattoo hydrated while it's in your body. So you could pop a pimple in your tattoo 10 years later, and some of that pigment will come out with the pimple. Is that um, why you said, you and I were exchanging some emails a, a couple of weeks ago, and one of the comments you made was, it, it's living. Like your, your tattoo is a living, it lives with you, it grows with you, it's a living thing. Is that what your reference was? or? Yeah. Yeah, and the Japanese actually have a term for it. I can't think of it offhand. It's uh, kurosumi or something sumi, which means living living ink. Uh, it grows with you. It moves with you. It ages with you. Over time, any thin lines that you had that looked great, nice and thin when you first had it done, over time they get thicker too. So the, the smaller you try to pack detail into a tiny space over time that will become dark and blobbed out and be very hard to read 
So that makes Uh-oh. sense because I think I sent you a sample of something and I said, Hey, what do you think of this? And you're like, there's so much detail and so much thing. It, it would need a bigger surface. So it doesn't do exactly what you just said is bleed into itself and, and do all these sort of odd things that won't make it look as clean as, as what it looked like originally. Right. Something along those lines. Right. Right. Yeah. We have to consider longevity. Like uh, we're a one medium where hopefully the people we tattoo will live a long, healthy life. So <laughs> their tattoos hopefully will stay with them for a long yeah. time. So we, we have to consider longevity and uh, you lack integrity. If you don't talk to your clients about how a tiny little tattoo is going to look in 10 years. So what is a, um, let, I want to give people an idea of cost. If they've never, if they've never had a tattoo, um, and I, I think I use the the term. Well, you know, some people get those little goldfish or something, or a little bird, or you know, a small flower. Like, what is the cost range in in tattoos and and things like that? Uh, that may vary shop to shop, artist to artist. Yeah. Um, some of it depends on experience. Uh, newer artists would be willing to do. The same size piece for less than a more experienced artist. With a newer artist, it may not look as nice as it would if you got it done with an artist who has more tenure. You assume um, the risk, it sounds like. <laughs> okay. Well, if you know they're brand new, they're brand new. They're yeah, just yeah. learning, right? Yeah. So all shops have a shop minimum. Right. Um, our studio is $100. Okay. Uh, and other shops could be anywhere from 80 to $150 just for a tiny little tattoo. That means if they set up their station, that's the base charge. Um, I try to talk people into getting a couple tattoos that are little rather than the, just a tiny little thing. But I, I still stick to my guns because we have to pay for supplies. Uh, the shop doesn't pay for a lot of our supplies. We have to pay for our, a lot of our own supplies. So we kind of have to put them back. Otherwise, we can't continue to do what we do. Uh, larger tattoos, like say, it, it's hard to say, but for me personally, if you're getting something, say, the size of your palm of your hand, yeah. that could be anywhere from 150 to $250, depending on detail. Detail. Um, and the, and I, does the amount of color also factor into it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So whether it's black and gray typically gets done a little bit quicker than color work. Um, so... Do you recommend Jason, do you recommend black and gray over color? I do both and I really enjoy both. I think what it comes down to is personal preference. Uh, if you're not a very colorful person and you're worried about colors clashing, then color may not be your thing. Uh, black and gray is great. Um, some guys do it very light. Some guys do it very dark. Uh, so again, you're going to want to research your artist. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I keep saying, well, if somebody new comes in, if somebody new comes in, um, somebody new comes in, they've never had a tattoo, they want one. And you said, hey, you know what, I've done some counseling before. How do they know they're making the right decision? Or, or is that part of that process of, do you look at them ever and think you're not making the right decision? This isn't for you? Yeah, um, no, I- I feel you. I've sent people away. I've said, you know what? Um, I'm not willing to do that. And they'll be like, what? Why? It's my neck. (laughs) It's my face. (laughs) (laughs) So so there's certain things I won't do. Like me personally, I don't tattoo anyone under 18. Um, That's just one of my rules. Other artists will tattoo people who are 16 uh, with parental consent. Me personally, I won't. 
Uh, I touched on it earlier. I said, if you can attach sentiment to a tattoo and have some personal reason for getting the tattoo done, then it's, it's going to convince me quicker that this is something that I'm willing to do for you. Um, and, and I'll sit down and I'll talk to people about what may be tattoo taboo about an image. Uh, because in some parts of the world, if you get certain things tattooed, they're not going to be very nice to you. Um, some parts of the world, it's still illegal to show your tattoos. So you may be forced to ask to cover your tattoos. So me, I don't like to tattoo hands unless somebody is very heavily tattooed. I don't like to tattoo next period, but I will <laughs> if they're very heavily tattooed. I, I just about, tattooed. What is, it about, what is it about the necks, Jason? What is it like that? Is it because it's, it's highly visible or? Necks, hands, and your face, your head. It's the first thing people see when they meet you. So me personally, when I came out of college and I was looking to get hired as a counselor, um, there was a lot of people who shook my hand and was like, yeah, you're not going to work. And I'd be like, why? And they're like, well, you look like one of the clients. And I'd be like, like, maybe that would help. I don't know. But one of the guys went as far as saying, I think you'll, you'll just cause them to, to Jones. You'll, they'll, they'll go into a fit thinking, they're hanging out with one of their buddies and and I guess I understood it to a point so it, it's good to understand that whether or not the taboo is shrinking there is still a large portion of society that really hates tattoos uh, they don't understand them uh, they don't see it as an art form and they're, they're more likely to treat you a lot differently than they did before once they see your tattoos um, so I talk about all of this stuff with my clients before I work with them. I'll even go as far as asking them what they plan to do with their future. Um, Because if they're going to be a lawyer, if they're going to be a nurse, if they're going to work in a school or around children, um, they may encounter some bias that I I would carry with me later on. um, And they would definitely have to deal with in their future. Well, I, I'm uh, yeah, I applaud you for uh, having that level of, engagement and interest and decorum um you know to provide that counsel to people i think you know if if i came into your shop and you did that again it would put me at ease and and um you know make me feel better one last question you earlier you said about needles and and it's a needle that's going into your into your skin mm-hmm. um and somebody somebody had asked me this before uh are, do the needles get changed over? Like, or are they, uh, is it like a dentist where they get sanitized or um, like, how does, how does, what is the needle? They come in a package and you put them in a, in a tool or something or. So there's a couple different machines now. Um, some needles, they come on a bar um, and you put them into a tube. You can autoclave the tube, but you would never reuse the needle. Right. Um, some now use cartridge machines and those cartridge machines, basically, there's just a little tube that clicks into your machine, and the needles are inside of those. Um, pretty much across the board, what I'm seeing now is almost every studio is starting to work with single-use uh, equipment because it's so cheap. Back in the day, we had to make all of our own needles. We had to buy a, a whole bunch of tubes that fit all the different groupings because if we wanted to tattoo during the day, we'd have to have 10 to 30 different liners all 
sterilized and ready to go. So before we would leave the shop at night, we'd have to scrub all of those, send them through an autoclave, much like the dentist right. would do. Uh, but now everything comes single use, prepackaged. I even show people the expiry dates on the needles before mm-hmm. I open them right in front of them so that they can say, oh, he opened it in front of me, just so that they know that for their own peace of mind, that it's a single use only used on them product. Awesome. We attach those pieces of paper that are attached to the back of the tube to our waivers that they sign, uh, just in case there's ever an instance where the company had a recall, then we can correspond sure. with those people, ask them, please go get tested. If they get tested, then we can set up some kind of class for them, class action to help them get any kind of remittance or... Yeah help from the company that yeah, they I, you guys have thought of everything jason like um you know throughout the whole process you really have uh like even even at the end with the documentation it sounds like so um it it uh that's good to know like i my my vision of what a tattoo shop used to be <laughs> when i was younger to what you describe now is is a lot different in terms of, of how, you know, the equipment you use, how ready you are, how you deal with people, um, you know, the psychological aspect of it, um, getting to know people. Uh, I have bombarded you with a whole bunch of probably rookie questions, but I know the people listening who might be interested have these similar types of questions. So I, I'm thankful that, you know, you're able to bring us through that process. Um is there anything that you, before I let you go, is there anything that you would like to say, or maybe I didn't cover um, uh, before, before we uh, bring it to conclusion? Uh, well, I, I mean, if you're considering to get a tattoo, say you've gone through all the process, you've selected your artist and you're about to show up for your appointment. Oh no, something happens. You can't come. Um, it's really good to get a hold of your artist and let them know possibly a couple days ahead of time because it really jumbles up our schedule when people just don't show. Now with okay. artists, we get paid after we do the work. Uh, we don't get paid hourly for being there. So when people just don't show, they, they really put us in a spot where they affect their livelihood. Um, we've spent hours and hours working for them before they ever show up to the shop to create the art and prepare for them. And then for them to not show, um, that really puts us in a spot where now we're just kind of sitting on our hands for the day. Um, That being said, if we get the notice, we're more than willing to move them around in the schedule and work with them. Uh, Secondly, if you're about to show up for your tattoo, you should have eaten something before you came in. Uh, You lose a little bit of energy um, and it's good to be hydrated and have food in your system before you show up. That way you have the stamina and you have the the electrolytes. You have all the things you need in your body to be able to go through a stressful situation. Um, And you're probably going to get through your tattoo a little bit more. I tell all my clients they're the boss and I reassure them that they can take a break whenever they want to. But the one rule I do have is breathe. Um, Because if you hold your breath, you're going to pass out. and I think in life, when you know that you're the boss and, and all you need to do is just breathe, things get a little bit easier. Um, and I guess lastly, be prepared to meet some of the weirdest people you've met in your life. Uh, we're in tattooing because a lot of us couldn't find careers in other social paths. Uh, me, myself, I have BPD. 
uh, borderline personality disorder. So that's why making an, doing an interview like this is nothing for me because I enjoy talking. <laughs> Sometimes I'm just as surprised by what I said as the people who hear it. Um, I do all kinds of impressions and on occasion you could hear me talking like Elmo and I might split your brain. Uh, just, just walk into the shop with an open mind. These people are, are eccentric. Maybe is a word you might use. Uh, and we're odd. We like to have fun. We love music and we love people. Otherwise we wouldn't be doing what we do. Uh, we're, we're really excited to meet new people and learn about their stories and get to know their culture. Um, so just, just be open to the fact that we're odd. <laughs> oddly, oddly yours, right, uh, Jason? So uh, I get it. Uh, with a message of mutual respect, I think is, is one of the key takeaways there for your art and your craft and what you do and your time. Uh, as I say, thank you for your time uh, this evening uh, to tattoo artist Jason Bro. And uh, I want to thank the owner of uh, the Patron Hearts Tattoo Shop, Janie White. Hopefully I've got that correct. Um, and um, the Instagram tag of the business, um, I will have that in the podcast notes along with uh, Jason, your Instagram uh, tag as well. So people can check out your work um, you. and any other contact information for the shop. I'll put that online as well. Uh, thank you so much. I hope that everybody uh, feels well informed and uh, maybe we'll have you back as a follow-up to, to do something, or maybe I'll come see you at the shop someday and we'll do like a in-store segment or something. Uh, Jason. <laughs> I'd be down. And everybody else at the shop said they're excited to hear the podcast and I think they would be down too. Hey, right uh, thank on. you so much for your time. I appreciate the fact that you're willing to do something like this and make what we do a little less taboo. Thank you very much, Jason. Right on. Have a great evening. That is Jason Bro from Patron Heart Tattoos helping us get inked. Now, let's get to another song from Canadian reggae legend and multi-Juno uh, nominated artist, Jay Douglas with I Love Toronto. Said I'll be jamming, jamming my way home. I found me a new love, and Toronto is her name. She just won't let me go, we'll let the good times roll. I was born in Paradise Road, grow where the north winds blow. Seasons put on their show that stream into our soul. Toronto, she's so pretty, Ooh, making my life so rich. We'll take the love train to little Jamaica, so much roots and culture with diversity. Sweet six calling me. I'll be jamming, 
with his new song I Love Toronto off the new album Confessions which we will have all the information for in the podcast notes you can also hear the song on thepathradio.com now let's get to our next segment and that is with our lead scientist from fellow one to talk about body type science and diet here is Mark Nelson I would like to welcome to the show lead scientific researcher and pioneer of body type science for fellow one Mark Nelson, who's going to talk with us today about body types, science-based diets, exercise, lifestyle, metabolism, body mass, and more. Welcome to the show, Mark. Um, how are things going today in Santa Fe, New Mexico? Well, we're in the middle of the monsoon, which is good because in the high desert, rain is a luxury. Um, and so it's nice to have the rain. We've had a lot of rain and we currently are in the midst of thunderstorms. So We'll see how this podcast goes. So, um, you know, when I think of Santa Fe and, and I, you know, when you listen to some of my other work, we do a lot of, uh, a lot of music stuff, right? And I keep thinking of John Bon Jovi and, and the Young Guns movie and he has that song Santa Fe. But, but so then I started looking up Santa Fe. I was like, I got I to know a little bit more about Santa Fe. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's the oldest capital in the United States. That's correct. Founded in 1607, somewhere between 1607, 1610. And all, and this was the thought. Uh, this was intriguing. Although it's situated in the south, you can go skiing. That's right, because we're at um, seven thousand feet. 
So in the wintertime, we actually get uh, quite a bit of snow. All things relative, we are in the high desert again. So moisture comes at a premium. But when we do get it, we get snow. And there is actually decent skiing up in the mountains above us that I'm looking at right now. And then if you want to head a bit farther north to Taos, you get really, really good quality skiing. Wild. I never would have originally thought. I don't think people think Santa Fe, go skiing, right? Yeah, because it's the high desert. Yep. Is that your favorite thing to do, or, or what's your favorite Santa Fe thing to do? My favorite thing is hiking. There's uh, marvelous hiking trails everywhere. I, I'm more of a on-my-two-feet kind of guy. I, I did ski when I was younger, but I don't anymore. But I do love hiking. It, it is my favorite outdoor activity here. That's cool. Hiking and skiing, Santa Fe, we're going to keep that in mind. But I didn't, I, listen, I didn't, I didn't invite you on the show to come and talk about skiing and hiking. <laughs> Um, we want to talk about body type science. So for the folks, so we can set some foundation, what exactly is body type science? So most people have heard of the endomorphectin or mesomorph body types, but they don't realize is that those body types are not scientific whatsoever. They were never based on science. They are not the scientific standards. They are nothing. They don't really exist. Uh, they are subjective, arbitrary shapes that really have no basis in anything and were debunked long ago. Yet when you ask anyone about what is your body type, that's the most common response because there were no body types, scientific body types, before we started biotype science in 2003. And the reason that we started biotype science was because all that there are are different shapes and types of human bodies, yet there are only three standards that mainstream science and medical doctors go by, and that's the standard scientific human body anatomy look by type one it's that image that you see if you open up any scientifically approved human body anatomy book it's the human body with all muscle and muscle mass fully developed it's the body type one that is the standard the second standard is the body mass index or the bmi uh and the third standard is the bmr or basal metabolic rate which is the number of calories daily that your body requires just to function and all those standards are inaccurate because none of them take into account skinny fat. And skinny fat is this newer term that has come about in the last decade or so. Uh, and it includes uh, cellulite, loose skin, saggy skin, thin fat, crepey skin, and normal weight obesity. And it's important because if you're someone like me, who when I'm within my safe BMI weight range, I have skinny fat all over my body. And skinny fat is in place of where muscle and muscle mass should be, and it's because of my genetics. And yet that currently is not calculated in or even considered when it comes to the three mainstream science and medical doctors' biotype standards, which again are the biotype 1, the BMI, and the BMR. So skinny fat is how we really began to look at the human body and how we came to so creating the body types. So there's a lot. You you said a lot there, and and there's a few things I was going to ask you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try and compartmentalize them for folks. Um, I was gonna get into this in a, in a moment, but uh, and I did. I googled. I like when 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 we said, hey, let's talk about this, and I'm like, you know what? I I want to understand more because the body types. I, I know this stuff. I've heard this stuff before. And you're right. I Google it. I get somatotypes, endomorph, ectomorph, mesomorph. Yep. Um. And now you're saying, well, look, the current mainstream science and the medical doctor body type standards, those aren't accurate the way that those are coming through to us. Um, but in a, in a, in a way that we can understand it, 
what makes those body types or those those terms that describe that uh, what makes them inaccurate in your research opinion? Okay, so again, the mainstream science and medical doctor standards are the body type one, the BMI, and the BMR. And the, now, BMI, we we hear BMI. I think when we go to the gym, oh, when right? you go and see your doctor for your annual check, right? You hear BMI yeah. because that's how they judge whether you're healthy and and quote unquote normal is if you're within your safe BMI weight range. But the BMI is not an accurate standard right now. And we're not knocking the fact that we have standards. We like scientific standards because it's how we understand things and it's how we judge things so that we can you know, understand in terms of health and such. So we're not knocking the standards. We're simply saying that these standards are inaccurate. They need to be strengthened and made more accurate. And the way that we do that is we understand skinny fat. So again, we have the by type one. The reason that it's not accurate, excuse me, is because it does not take into account skinny fat. Uh, And it's a fact that any part of the human body can be underdeveloped to whatever degree, including the muscle and muscle mass. So the body type one is not accurate because it doesn't take into account skinny fat. BMI, same thing. It's not taking into account skinny fat. So uh, if you are well within your safe BMI weight range, and you're someone like me who still has skinny fat all over my body, even when I'm well within my safety and my weight range, I have what's called normal weight obesity, meaning that I have too much fat on my body, even though I'm well within my safe BMI weight range, it's ge- genetic. And the reason that I have skinny fat on my body in places where I, I should have muscle is because of my genes. The second reason that the BMI is not accurate is because it's possible to be someone like Dwayne Johnson, who is all muscle. He has more muscle on his body likely than his default muscle mass which would take him outside of his safe BMI weight range into the overweight or obese columns of his BMI weight range. But he most certainly is not overweight or obese because he doesn't have too much fat on his body. The third standard, the BMR, same thing. It doesn't take into account skinny fat. Why does that matter? Because if you're someone like me who is normal weight obese, one pound of muscle burns six calories daily but one pound of skinny fat and fat only burns two to three calories daily. So if you're going by your standard BMR, whether it's the Mifflin or the Harris Benedict, you're likely still eating too many calories because you have skinny fat on your body where there should be muscle and muscle mass. So the reason that all three of those mainstream science and medical doctor biotype standards, the biotype one, the BMI and the BMR are not accurate is because they do not take into account skinny fat. Okay. And now skinny fat, and you've, you've used it in examples in the comparison, and you've referenced yourself, uh, your skinny fat. Correct. Break that down for this. Break down the skinny fat phenomenon for us again. Yeah. So it's only been around now for the last decade or so in terms of the terminology to understand. I obviously had skinny fat all the way back, as far back as eight years old, really my entire life. But I first began to notice it when I was eight years old. But so skinny fat, again, there was no term for it when I was eight years old. I would go and see the doctor, and they would do my weight and height and calculate my BMI. And if I was within my safe BMI, I was a body type one, and that was that. And it, it didn't matter that I would show them, hey, what's up with, with all this fat all over my body? Even though I'm skinny, I'm well within my safe BMI weight range, but all I have is fat all over my body where this should be muscle and, and muscle mass. And doctors didn't care because 
all that they used was the BMI. And so right. skinny fat yes. finally started to come into play uh, again about a decade or so ago when uh, you know we, we started noticing that there's cellulite, there's loose skin, saggy skin, and thin fat, which is basically if it's not cellulite and there's no other real category for it, it's thin fat or crepey skin. All these things, right, are are things that are on the human body, and you can have it if you are fat or overweight or obese. But you can also have it if you're a skinny person, like me, when I was within my safe BMI weight range, or am I have skinny fat? So it's just a it's something that is ge- genetic. Uh, it usually isn't seen on the human body until you start to reach uh, your, your, your mid twenties. But the fact of the matter is, is there are a lot of people who are, who are younger than that who experience skinny fat. So is that right? So, so as I, as I digest what you're saying, we have typically in the past said, well, that person is skinny or fits this body type based on our understanding of what skinny or fat might be. But we we can have a person who looks skinny from from what we understand skinny to be, but have fat content on their body or other characteristics that sort of describe this skinny fat that kind of go, you know what, you look you look healthy in terms of all these things over here or everything kind of fits this description. But there's some other things to consider because you still have this this fat content that we're not we're sort of ignoring because it fits these other criteria now. When you, um, with your research and, and the, the body type, uh, descriptions, um, you've identified four body types in a way that we can consume this. If, if we're hearing these body types for the first time, um, and I know there's a lot here. I know like, as I've tried to digest it, there's a lot there. So, um, what are they? What are the characteristics in the four body types that you've identified? And are, are we dealing with terms like, like BMI, BMR, um, you know, mesomorphic. Are, are we still dealing with these types of terms or are they more simple? Or can you help us digest and understand what your four body type um, body types are? Yes. So, you research on? so in terms of science, because we like to stick to science as much as possible and just what is and, and, and what isn't. If we look at the human body in terms of how it's built, the scaffolding and structure, it's built on the bones the spinal column, the vertebra, and then everything that sort of grows out from that scaffolding and structure. So it is a scientific genetic fact that any part of the human body can be underdeveloped to whatever degree. That includes the spine, if you have, say, um, scoliosis, right? And then it's also a genetic fact that every vertebra houses a specific set of vertebra, excuse me, of muscles and with those muscles, muscle mass. And again, it's a fact that any of those can be under developed. If you have vertebra that are under developed relative to the actual vertebra itself or the muscles relative to that vertebra or both, then that will directly affect your posture as well as your metabolism because again we know that one pound of muscle burns six calories but one pound of fat skinny fat only burns two 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 three calories so we looked at it like 
we know that all this is in line with science. So how do we understand body type and shape? Well, we know we have 26 vertebrae. There are seven cervical, 12 thoracic, five lumbar, one sacrum, and one coccyx, excuse me. And we broke it down in terms of a body type one is just a body type one. There are people out there in the world who look like the standard body type one. And so that body type is a real body type that indeed does actually exist. Then there are people like me who I've never looked like a body type one. I've never been a body type one. And uh, so the, a body type one is zero vertebrae and muscle and muscle mass underdeveloped. It's all fully de- de- developed in, in terms of the standard body type one. By type two, we have one to eight underdeveloped vertebrae. By type three is nine to 17, and the by type four is 18 to to 26. And right now, we aren't claiming that that's written in stone or that it's set in concrete. We had to start somewhere with breaking it down, and that seemed like the most logical way to actually break it down. We now have nearly 500 scientific biotype quizzes from real people up on the website. And we have the example side by side showing by type one, two, three, and four. And you can see clearly the difference in the back structure and, and the actual muscle development and such in, in those images. So is that making sense? It is. And, you know, I, I was thinking of something when you started talking about the vertebrae and how they're associated with muscles. And sometimes you hear you, and you may not know this, you may not know this, uh, an answer to this, but it, I'm just making a connection. Maybe you do. Uh, sometimes you hear physiotherapists say, oh, you have to work on your core because uh, this vertebrae, you know, this part of the vertebrae is weak. And by working the, the, your core, you're going to strengthen the muscles, which is going to impact the vertebrae. Does that sound like it plays into those body types? Totally. If, if you've got, totally. Totally, totally does. And it, it, it's one of the reasons why we're big fans of things like yoga. Right, because oh. yoga is about getting to know your back and 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 each vertebrae, um, vertebra, excuse me, all the vertebrae really. Uh, and once you can get to know your back, you can get a better sense of where your strengths and weaknesses are, and what to actually build in terms of the actual muscles. So, and that can be correlated with things like weightlifting. So you can really focus on which muscles to build properly that might be weaker than others. So yes, that goes hand in hand. And you, we could do those things. Like we could do those exercises. We could, uh, you know, develop those muscles. It's not going to change our body type because those structures are still those structures, but we can change the way we live or, or influence how we feel. Which is okay. So that is, uh, Yes, that is true. Okay. Uh, on, on the other side of that, we are also developing experimental proprietary exercises that can actually change your body type. But that's down the road. The, the, okay. the, the first thing that we always encourage people to do is get to know what your actual body type is right now. Get to know what your actual genetics are so that you can accept them, figure out what the best diet, exercise, and lifestyle is for your specific body to be as healthy as possible. Once you're there, once you have figured that out, you figured out what your actual scientific body type is, what diet, exercise, and lifestyle is best for your specific body type, then we're happy to talk more about possible ways to strengthen your body type and maybe change it. But until you have accepted your body and genetics for what it is and figured out the best diet exercise and lifestyle to be as healthy as possible in your 
body type as it is now. Uh, that is our main focus, uh, and I'll talk about that more later. But is that making sense? Okay, so it does. And so now I'm thinking uh, I could do these exercises and these things to influence, uh, you know, potentially down the road my body type. But on the flip side, does a certain body type influence other factors like obesity or weight gain? maintenance balance etc like and if it does it does what does it mean in terms of how we should be leveraging our knowledge on body type like so so if i'm a and i'm just i'm just looking down here at my nose if i'm a body type two does that influence obesity or weight gain or maintenance differently than body type three or four etc most certainly most certainly okay and it really boils down to how much skinny fat that, that you have on your body because the more skinny fat that you have on your body, the higher the probability is that you will put on fat in that area of your body. Because again, one pound of muscle burns six calories, but one pound of skinny fat or fat only burns two to three. So if you have skinny fat on your body in place of where there should be muscle, that directly negatively affects your metabolism, right? And so, and you can go to the gym, someone like me, I, I went to the gym and I worked my butt off trying to put on muscle and I would put on muscle. Uh, and, but as soon as I stopped working out that, that muscle would quickly go away. Cause that's just the nature of repetition exercises. And I could never put on muscle at the rate that a bi type one could. Uh, I, when I was in college, I was determined to fix my body and put on muscle and look quote unquote normal determined. So I had some, some, some friends who were by type ones and they went up to the gym regularly and they were just ripped and buff. And I followed their diet and I followed their, their, their workout and I followed their supplements and I did everything that they were doing. And I never even came close to looking like their body, even though I worked just as hard doing the same exercises, the same diet and the same supplements. I never came close to looking like their body because I was a body type four and it was my genetics. So is that making sense? It is. And you know, you're making me think too, you know, something happens every January, right? Everybody goes to the gym where we make all these, uh, you know, prognostications of our diets and, and, and some people might be just doomed right from the start because we have in our head an image of what we're, what we're supposed to, because, you know, you open, men's health or women's health and you say well that's what i'm supposed to do and i'm here's the diet and but it there's another thing here that that is being determined by body type where if you do those things that make those types of people successful you may not be successful totally and that's the only image so the 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 image that all of us are fed from day one is the body type one image Right. It's it's the biotype one female up on the Sports Illustrated cover. It's the biotype one male on men's health, et cetera. That's the image that we all see. And it is the most coveted. And it's what everyone is trying to achieve to. And it's what you see up on social media. So social media is one of the worst culprits for this, because what you have is these filters, this Photoshopping and such that just doesn't paint a real picture. Of course. But what's what's really (laughs) telling about is when someone is photoshopping and filtering those those images what are they making the images look like they're making it look like a body type one because that's the most coveted body type out there right so but 
it most certainly affects young people's mental states and their health in general because they're trying to, and, and really everyone, all of us have been trying to live up to those impossible standards, right? Because again, when you go and see your licensed medical doctor, that's the standard that you're being held to. You don't realize that, but you are being held to the by type one standard. And if you can't meet that standard, like it's just been very, very recently since doctors have started to wake up and realize that they've been totally unfair with folks like me and anyone else who deals with skinny fat on their body, because it's, it was always my fault. If I, if I wasn't, if I didn't look like a body type one, even when I was well within my safe BMI weight range, it was my fault somehow. I was cheating on my diet exercise <laughs> or lifestyle somehow, even though it was just my genetics. I simply didn't genetically have a body type one, but that's the standard that I was being held to. It's the standard that everyone is being held to, and it's got oh, to change. Mark, can a body tell me this for anybody who's a body type four or three? Can I be a body type four and still have hope that I can build some of that muscle mass or 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 um, impact my skinny fat in a positive way? You can, but it's it's it is a lot of work. And again, the downside of the repetition exercises, right? You stop doing them, what happens? All that gain will go away. So, so do we have to do something different? You do, and that's why we are working on pro proprietary exercises. And, and I'll, I'll give a little overview on those, but I'm not going to give a whole lot because again, I don't want people to focus on this part of things right now. Um, but in terms of, so think about the human body in terms of gravity. Gravity is the ultimate weight that is always pushing down on the human body, making it work. And we know this as a fact because when astronauts go into space, they have to work extra hard to maintain their bone mass and their, and their, their muscle mass, even their teeth mass, et cetera, because all of that under zero gravity or less gravity, the, the body's not working nearly as hard. So it starts to uh, get less in terms of all that mass. Right. So gravity, again, is that thing that's always pushing down on us and, and making our body work. So if we can find exercises that actually work in harmony with gravity, where we're building muscle, but it's the gravity that's helping us build that actual muscle, then unlike the repetition exercises, when you stop, if you do it in terms of gravity, you will have built that muscle relative to gravity, relative to your posture, relative to how you walk and such. And that muscle will have a have more of a tendency to, to, to hang around for, for the long term because it's gravity that is working against that muscle to maintain it. So is that making sense? It, it does. It does. It makes sense. I'm just thinking, you know, from a balance, there's more of a balanced perspective. You're, we're targeting uh, certain certain things that are custom to our true body types um, that, that you sort of given us a description for. I, I want to touch on something because earlier you said, Hey, the website, which is fellow1.com. Um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You said something there that says um, it, we provide the only scientific body types in existence. That's right. And that um, the others are unscientific. That's correct. What, what makes these scientific versus the others unscientific? So, and, and I'm not disparaging the others. No, I'm no. just trying to establish an understanding between scientific and unscientific for this stuff. Right. So basically, for a body type to be a standard, for it to, uh, to, uh, for it to apply like anything else, like the, the actual BMI itself applies to all human beings because it takes into account the same general factors that, that apply to every human being 
we want to say equally, but we know that the BMI is not totally accurate. It needs to be fixed, but that's the general idea of the BMI. It's height and weight that are calculated to, to give you this you know, scale average so that you know, or this scale rating so that you know if you're quote-unquote normal, if you're at minimal, minimal risk for being overweight or obese at you know, moderate or at high risk. And it is that standard that, again, it really applies to every single human being. So first, all the other body types, there is no science that backs them up. There is zero science for the somatotypes. There's zero science for the hormone body types. We know that hormones do, in, in, in fact, uh, affect the, the, the human body, and it can affect weight and such. But there's no evidence that it affects the shape of the body from day one. If you're born in a human body, unless a doctor has already diagnosed you with being abnormal in some way, and then you have that actual diagnosis, even then yeah. you're still a body type one. Everyone is born into a body type one, everyone. So again, even if you have a diagnosis of scoliosis or Poland syndrome, you're still a body type one, just with a specific diagnosis. So because you're, 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 whatever you've got, you're deviating from that standard that we believe is the standard that we should all be. That's correct. Right. Right. And so, but that is the only body type standard is that, is that body type one. Right. And so in, in terms of the somatotypes or the hormone biotypes or the kidney biotypes or the triangle biotypes or any other biotypes that, that were out there prior to our biotype science, there, were, there was no science that backed it up. Why am I that shape, right? You can look at somebody in terms of the quote-unquote hormone biotypes and you can see somebody who is apparently a, a adrenal hormone biotype but can essentially be the same as someone who is an ovary or a liver. None of it has any basis for it to actually be scientific. Our biotypes... Because, Mark, we apply... I just want to make sure. We often apply lifestyle to influence body type 1 with some of these other supporting factors that, that are common to us now in, in society. Is that... Uh, that is right. So any of those... So, like, the the hormones can definitely affect a, a body type 1. And if you have a diagnosis relative to that, and you know that you've got some sort of... You know, whatever hormone that it is, and it can affect your 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 weight gain or, or loss. That can definitely affect a body type one, right? So, and it can definitely affect a body type two, three, or four as well. But if you're a body type two, three, or four, and you have skinny fat on your body, and we have strong evidence of this up on the website, so um, body type quiz participant. 1170 is it? She was 23 years old. She lost 19 pounds. She was at the top end of her safe BMI weight range. And according to mainstream science and medical doctors, when she's within her safe BMI weight range, especially as she got down to her mid range, she should look identical to a body type one. Yeah, we had the evidence up on our site where she lost weight safely. She wasn't starving her body and such. She lost weight safely. She lost two pounds average over 70 days and got down well within her mid-range BMI. And she was expecting that she would look just like a body type one because that's what her doctor said and everyone else was telling her, but she doesn't. She lost all that weight safely. She got down to her, to her mid-range and she still looks like a, a body type three. And she was shocked and all of her comments are actually up on her profile page. But what I'm getting at is again, 
it is a scientific fact that right now mainstream science and, and medical doctors, right, when you are within your safe BMI weight range, you are a body type one with all right. muscle and muscle mm-hmm. mass fully developed. Yet all that we have is examples of people and folks who have taken the actual scientific body type quiz and who have answered clearly, I've never been a body type one in my entire life. Yet mainstream science and doctors say, no, everyone is born into a, a, a body type one. The only reason that you're not a body type one is because you're eating too many calories daily above BMR. Once you lose the weight, stop eating so many calories, you'll look just like a body type one with all muscle and muscle mass. But we have the evidence up on our site that that is not true. All the, all the, all that there are is people across the world who, when they're within their safe BMI weight range, they have skinny fat on their body and the more skinny fat that they have, the, their, their body type goes from a two to a three yeah. to a four relative to how much skinny fat. So we are actually relying on the scientific evidence, the facts, the logic, and the reason that breaks down fully why there are so many different types of body types, shapes, etc., and why even when you're well within your safe BMI weight range, you don't look like a body type one, even though mainstream science doctors say You've always been the bi type one. So, Mark, um, you know we've we've circled around this this next question a little bit. Um, and, you know, and I struggle with the term obesity because um, I'm trying to put it in the context of everything that we're talking about. But let's just go with it for the for the sake of the question. Obesity has been deemed an epidemic as far back I think as 2013, maybe sooner. I think. Uh, 2013. Uh, and, and they say obesity contributes to leading causes of death, like heart disease, stroke, diabetes, some types of cancer. Um, now this is, you know, I, I'm sure it's, uh, you know, globally, but, um, this statement was very specific to the United States. Um, can you, can you help us, like, can you relate a little bit or, or expand a little bit on the obesity epidemic? as it's relative to body type science? And I, I have a feeling like I'm like, you, you've sort of, touched on a few of these things in some of your questions, but maybe more explicitly. Yeah. So they go hand in hand. And it's one of the things that we are really trying to focus our scientific research on is, uh, again, if you have skinny fat on your body where you should have muscle and you're being told that you, that your BMR calculation is this many calories daily, you're being held to the standard that you have all this muscle on your body and if you don't, if you have skinny fat, then you're eating too many calories daily, right? And then, and then, of course, we have the standard Western diet, which is fast junk and processed food loaded with sugar, right? You add that factor in and you add in the, the fact that there's gen, gen, genetics and the skinny fat issue and folks are eating all the sugar and they have a lower lower metabolic rate simply because of all the skinny fat, what you get is you get a, a population like we have now that like 50% or more is dealing with obesity. It's only getting worse in child age kids because, again, if you go out to these to the supermarket and you look at any of the foods on, on the shelf, most of them are loaded with sugar. People don't yeah. realize how dangerous and sugar, from my point of view, is worse than cocaine. It, 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 it is this thing that it causes fatty, fatty livers. It causes obesity, especially 
refined sugar, and it is literally in everything. Show me something that isn't loaded with sugar in terms of mainstream products. It's become normal, and it shouldn't be normal. So the obesity epidemic, there are multiple factors that are making people obese, but one of them is by type, too much skinny fat, and then this this horrible Western diet that has spread globally now. China is dealing with serious issues with obesity now because of the diet, etc. But there are definitely multiple factors here. But it is important to note that billions of dollars are spent on research every year on cancer and obesity, etc. We don't have a cure for for cancer, and we don't understand why obesity is getting worse. We here at Fellow One Research do know why. That is why, because of bi-types, of skinny fat, of poor diets. And there are other factors, lifestyle and exercise also play in. But those are the, 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 the main factors right now which are playing into this. And if we can understand bi-type and skinny fat better, we can better understand diet, exercise, and lifestyle and wrangle this whole thing. Because you're targeting it towards the body type. Now, you know, um, there's a there's something else that came up in, in, in some of the content that I was reading um, that you've posted. And, and it's around the enteric nervous system or ENS. Um, but what really caught my attention was, you know, we often say things like, I have this gut feeling. Or it's, you know, it's... Uh, you hear it in sports analogy, it's gut check time, or you're going into a busy, a busy time at work at the office. Hey team, it's gut check time. And, um, but you've taken, you've taken that you've taken the gut feeling and the gut check time. Um, and you talk about gut flora and the gut brain axis connection. And I'm sure the listeners are going, what are the, you know, I get the gut feeling, I get the gut check. What are these other things? Um, can you can you share with us a little bit about that part of the research and, and understanding as well? Yeah. Give us a gut feeling on this. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so you know the the gut feeling up until recently w- was always considered more of a figure of speech, right? It was just metaphorical. It didn't really exist. Yeah. It totally <laughs> exists. The so the enteric brain is this network of like a hundred million nerves that extends from your esophagus all the way down to essentially your rectum and inside of that uh, is is the gut flora and the two really play nicely hand in hand well nicely when they're in a state of balance so if your good bacteria are happy you've kept them happy and you have fed them really good things like healthy whole foods right and other probiotics like yogurt and such that will help build those good bacteria. When those good bacteria are happy, they are creating things like dopamine and serotonin and GABA and those chemicals, right? The amounts of of those chemicals will affect your actual brain and your mood. And so all of that is playing in, in, in harmony with things. The only thing that uh, and we're still rather young in this science, so we have a lot to to actually learn about it all. But one of the things that we aren't looking at at all yet is how much muscle we actually have on our body in general, but relative to our actual abdomen. So if you are lacking muscle and muscle mass relative to your abdomen and you have more skinny fat there, that's also going to have a negative 
effect on things. It's what we here at Fellow and Research call holding the energy, being able to stand the heat. I think it was uh, FDR who originally used the quote, if you can't stand the heat, then get out of the kitchen. Well, that's what they're really talking about is anyone who has been famous or is famous knows what I'm talking about. Because if you can stand the, the heat well, if you can stand the actual pressure well, right, then you more than likely have well developed muscle relative to your abdominal area, no less. Um, That will, play into all of this. I'm going to sort of leave it there because we have so much research and I don't want to make too much speculation, but all those things go hand in hand. The actual enteric nervous system, the gut flora, and how much muscle that you have on your body relative to, to, to skinny fat, all that you know, is our major players in this general conversation. So you've connected gut flora, good bacteria with healthy diet, exercise, lifestyle, and the underscoring thing here is back to body type science. Um, you have a body type um, quiz on your website, fellow1.com. Sure. If someone wants to take that quiz, A, how do they do that? Um, B, what do they do with that information? And C, everybody always wants to know, is there a cost? <laughs> so <laughs> so um, it's the scientific body type quiz up at fellow1.com. And... So you can use a pin name because we are we encourage privacy so that you can you know be safe and there are no faces required in the in the uh, required images but they are required images because we have to have them to accurately process your your uh, quiz but when you take that quiz what we are identifying is uh, <clears throat> the skinny fat on your body where you have tendencies to put on fat. We look at other variables like um, family history, genetics in general, uh, whether you've ever been diagnosed with any abnormalities, any hormone imbalances and such. And all that we will then calculate in to identify what your, uh, we'll say, uh, body type is, in general, even though what we're really working towards is getting to a research center where we can use an MRI machine and really calculate that out. Mm, Until we get there, this quiz is as scientific as we can get with this process so that we can identify your actual biotype. We have also gathered all of the most recent current science-based diet exercise and lifestyle data and built our own proprietary diet exercise and lifestyle scores. We also calculate in the Mifflin BMR and the Harris Bandit BMR, as well as the adjusted scores, which will take into account skinny fat. We also account the, uh, excuse me, calculate the BMI. We are working on a BMI uh, adjusted score that takes into account skinny fat. But when you take the scientific quiz, that's what you get. You get the full uh, identification of your scientific biotype, your current uh, diet, exercise, lifestyle, and metabolism scores, along with the BMI score so that you can really paint a wholer picture scientifically of your health in general. Um, so that is the scientific biotype quiz. We also have the scientific weight loss program diary, which uses the scientific biotype quiz as its base. And then you can track your science-based diet exercise and lifestyle data. You can invite friends and family to join the conversation for free to you know, support your 
journey, et cetera. And you can track your actual images and see your progress, yada, yada. So that's the diary. Cool. Uh, and that's the two main things up on our site. And um, is, is this, you become part of the research team or is there a cost associated um, with yeah, it? So, or? Right. <clears throat> so the actual cost, you can get a free, a free coupon at the start of each month, but they go quickly. Um, oh, really? Okay. The, the actual scientific biotype quiz is on a sliding scale. I want to say it's from five ninety nine to to fourteen ninety nine. Uh, so we're we're trying to accommodate as many people as possible. But please keep in mind that you know, it, it's taken a lot to build this, and test it, and get it working, and then we have to process every quiz all the images and such. So that's what the actual cost is. And then when I get these reports or the diaries, um, I'm able to use that information to sort of, what do I do? What do I do next? What are my next steps? Is that the idea? That is. So basically you have a strong sense of where you are in terms of the current science. You can then again, sign up for the, uh, if you sign up for the advanced weight loss program diary, you'll get access to the, to the expert uh, diet, exercise, and lifestyle support team, uh, which we call oh, astnosis. If you think of like Siri or uh, Alexa, okay. right? So, but it, it, it's basically a way where you have access to an expert team that you can ask science-based diet, exercise, and lifestyle questions to help clarify things, so that you can figure out what is the best diet, exercise, and lifestyle for my specific body type. Mark, where do nutritionists where do um, nutritionists fall into this equation? That's great. We are actually looking at hiring uh, a licensed nutritionist to come in and be a part of our uh, our team here. So that uh, you know, right now we use HiMoz DA um, and High Google SERP one links, uh, but we would like to bring in a licensed new nutritionist so that you no, know, it just brings more credence to to right. what we are doing but yes we think that that is a but it, it, it fits in it fits in right very like neat. it's not something separate it very much fits in totally. um listen i i've been grilling you with with questions here and and you've given us some some insights on body type science uh supported by your research you have it online fellow1.com i'm going to include that uh in the notes of course um but as we bring our chat to conclusion um is there anything else you'd like to leave us with today you know, when I was young, I first noticed that my body was different. And since then, life was really hard. I was easily bullied. And I know that that is a common thing, especially now with social media and all this, you know, all this easy access and in places where folks can say things without being held accountable. And that's really caused a mental health crisis, especially among young people. Mm. And so one of the things that I... encourages to educate yourself, to learn what the actual real science says about such things so that you can really understand your body type. You can understand your genetics, what diet, exercise, and lifestyle works best for your specific genetic body type so that you can rise above all this nonsense, whether it's social media, whether it's the regular media, whether it's the ads that you are seeing on television, you know, that are saying this is the body type that you should have. No, there are many different body types. It is about accepting your body type for what it is, but understanding why it is that way so that, again, you can be as healthy as possible in the short and long term. So please 
take the time to go to fellowone.com, read through all of our current research, understand your scientific biotype, why it is the way that it is, figure out what the best diet, exercise, and lifestyle is for your specific body. Please be as healthy as possible. That helps us all out. It helps out the, the government and healthcare in general. Right now with the obesity epidemic, one of the main worries is, is the astronomical costs that go with the with being obese in general and all the negative effects that come with that and in, and our current healthcare system and healthcare in general is not sustainable we've got to fix that before it's too late mark thank you uh, that's mark nelson he is a lead scientific researcher and pioneer of body type science at fellow one i will have mark's contact info and websites in the podcast notes for everyone to check out Um, You gave us a good gut feeling, Mark. Thank you again. Thank you for having me on the show. All right, before we get to our next segment, let's hear from one of our friends of the podcast, RecipesAtMyTable.com. Recipes at My Table is a work of family, love of food, and sharing of stories. The stories keep the memories alive and make every day a party in my kitchen. Join me for the sharing of traditional Italian recipes and so much more. Visit me at www.recipesatmytable.com. I would like to welcome to the show the Executive Director of the Kingston Literacy and Skills Organization, um, Christiane Wojcik. Welcome to the show. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Are you enjoying, you enjoying the summer? Oh, it's been beautiful. I love the weather in Southern Ontario in the summertime. There's just, there's so much to get outside and see and do and enjoy. It's a little bit short for my taste. I wish it was a few weeks longer, but I'm happy to take advantage of it wide. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm uh, a fan of make summer longer. So um, <laughs> glad that you're enjoying it. I am too. So listen, you're, you're here to educate us on KLNS, which stands for Kingston Literacy and Skills. Um, What exactly is that, Christiane? So Kingston Literacy and Skills is a community agency that we really provide two services for free to those who are in Kingston and the surrounding areas. So one side of our agency and what we provide is literacy and basic skills training. And the word literacy can seem a little daunting sometimes because people think, oh, hey, I can read. It's really not that. It's thinking in terms of really improving your communication skills. So improving your reading, your writing, how you relate to others at work, as well as other employment and basic skills, which can be anything from math to digital literacy to those soft skills that make it easier for you to re-enter the workforce, to enter a a secondary school training program, or or to get that promotion in the job that you have. So soft skills would be things like conflict resolution and time management and budgeting. So that's one side of our, our business, our agency. The other side is that we actually provide English language instruction for newcomers to Canada. This is a program that's sponsored by the government of Canada, and we work almost exclusively with refugees and with sponsored refugees who've arrived in this country and need those English language skills to successfully settle, raise their families here, find a job, 
and move on with this new phase of their lives. So that's what we do. That's uh, you have a very wide spectrum of folks then who can use the services, and it's it's interesting. So you go from the refugees and the supported refugees, but you're also talking about folks who uh, might already be in the workforce and need to hone some of those skills for some of those next steps. It sounds like too. Absolutely. So the literacy and basic skills side of the agency is actually the older part of our services. We've been offering literacy and basic skills training in some form since 1977. So this is actually our 45th anniversary this year. And over the years, it's changed quite a bit from supporting families who are helping their children learn how to read and providing homework assistance at night to really that pre-employment or job skills upgrade. Almost anyone can walk in our doors from the LBS, that's our literacy basic skills side of the house, and find a service that we provide completely for free that meets a need to push them to the next level of where they're heading in their lives. So I was going to actually ask you, I was going to say, how long has KLS been providing literacy and skills training? But you said 1977 was... 1977. So our official 45th anniversary month yeah. is uh, September of this year. Oh, we're, so, so we're, we're right doing, on the cusp of it. We're doing the 45th anniversary show with you then. That's, Pretty that's much. Awesome. That's true. Hey, right on. So um, now you said earlier, uh, you talked about the Kingston, but do you have to be a resident of Kingston to take advantage of the services? No, you don't. So we do provide um, all of our services, including that language instruction piece for newcomers out of our Kingston site. And it truly in the surrounding communities. If you are outside of the area, you need transportation assistance, we can help you get to our site. But we have a second site as well, and that's in Napanee. So about 30 minutes to the west of us, and that has a little bit broader span and is more of our rural office. So from there, we reach into communities as close as Belleville and Deseronto, um, all the way up north into to some of these southern counties here in Ontario. So really, it's a pretty wide Now, what did you do during the pandemic? Did you kind of, did you do offline services or did you modify it's- it or... We did a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. So we were offering our core services online through Zoom and Teams. However, anybody could interact with us. Uh, Sometimes we had learners engaging on their smartphones. We provided curbside service. So a lot of cases, people who are a little hesitant about returning to school, they might not be comfortable with doing online learning. Then let's face it, that was a big challenge for, Mm -hmm. for many, many people. So through the whole pandemic, we also provided these curbside services where we would create packets of materials that were personalized for folks, meet them at the door, hand them off, pick them up, grade them, kind of correspondence style, like like some of us had back in the day. Um, And then as we were able to safely, we did start to hold some small modified one-to-one uh, tutoring and some smaller classes when people became more comfortable coming together with some social distancing in place. So you got, so we never, you got creative, you got creative and and you modified the services to keep people engaged. Now you may or may not know this, but, and, and I'm looking, you know, we talked about the, the geography of this, um, are these types of services available in other communities? Like, is there a community where we would find literacy and skills training um, that isn't KLNS, but something else? 
Yes, actually. So the literacy and basic skills side of our agency is sponsored by the government of Ontario. So it's actually a service from the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development. And there are LBS service providers all over Ontario. So we all do something a little bit different based on the needs of our individual communities and whatever the the driving workforce is there or or some of the challenges of the communities. But this is, it's a service that's spread out all over the place. The English language instruction side is actually sponsored, as I mentioned, by the government of Canada through IRCC, so Immigration, Refugees, and Citizenship Canada. And so you can find a link provider, which is a language instruction for newcomers to Canada. You can find a link provider from coast to coast across Canada. Now, and I was going to say, if if folks come to the KLNS website, which we're going to include in the podcast notes, um, and they're in a different community, could they use KLNS as a launch pad to say, help me, I need to find, I'm in this other community? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. All they would have to do is simply send us an inquiry, just a quick little comment through the website. And we're connected to service providers across the country or across Ontario through a very complex network. Now, um, at the beginning, I'm I'm not sure if I caught it. I I thought you might have said that some of the services are free, but is there any cost to the training? Zero. Zero cost. None of our services have any cost. So we're we're completely funded by our government sponsorships and contracts, as well as through partnerships with the community. So we we often run grant projects and, and special little programs to uh, to try some some special interventions. But nothing that we do has any cost, including the supports that are provided for learners, which can include transportation to get to and from us, wow. childcare. Um, and even some other things that are what we call learner supports. So things that a learner might need to engage, but they might not be able to spend the cash out of their pocket on. And that can range from, you know, headsets to accessibility and technology needs to all sorts of little things. Yeah, I was going to actually say to you, are there different supports available for for new learners? Is that what what some of those supports would be? Absolutely. So often the big ones are our transportation and child care. So we do actually have a child care center at Kingston Literacy and Skills that is um, part of our link program. So that is exclusively to provide child care. We, we take care of 13 kids who are under the mm-hmm. age of five that are those for our link learners. But we also do other child care programs um, to help our learners in general. So for example, just this summer, we ran a seven-week half-day art camp uh, in conjunction with another community agency here, Kingston School of Art, to give the children of our learners something to do while school's out so their parents could work on our, in our services elsewhere in the building. Um, so th- that's all very encouraging. Um, it's all very inviting, I think, for folks as they... Because I think, you know, you, you think of, well, what does it cost me? How do I get there? Um, what if I have all these accommodations? Um, maybe another thought or another question is how long is the training? So if I, if I need training, uh, what would folks be looking at in terms of length? That's kind of the impossible question to answer. Um, it really depends on what your goal path is and, and how you're coming to us. So we meet every learner where they are when they walk through the door. And we really serve a a broad spectrum of learners. So we have those who have been coming to us for years. 
because they, they really have some profound needs and, and gaps in their background education. Maybe school just didn't work for them. And so as adults, they find that they really enjoy learning in an adult environment. Hmm. And they use this free service as a way to upgrade their lives and move forward. We have others who come to us and say, hey, post-pandemic, I'm being asked to use all this smart technology or man, my boss wants me to do Excel spreadsheets all of a sudden, and I have no clue how to do this. And so we have people who are with us for four to six weeks sometimes. So it's customized uh, to what the requirement might be or the skill that needs to be developed. So there's no pressure in terms of I have to make a commitment for three months or six months. It's really you assess the need and then you apply whatever, um, you know, materials available for that person to progress through. That's right. Especially on the literacy and basic skills side of the house, there's a quick assessment that's done. And we talk a lot about goal setting and what each learner wants to accomplish down the road, why they're coming to us. So we establish an individualized learner plan that has a couple of milestones built into it. And you progress to those milestones at your own pace. We have different ways that you can engage with information. So for some people, they like the the small group, small learning classroom, where you might have three or four other people in the room with you, but you're all working on similar things. It's not the same as going to school where there's a teacher and a lecture but say everybody in the room is working on math. So you might be at different places, but the instructor in there is a specialist in teaching math and moves around and works with each of you individually, but you develop a class setting. Other folks really need, say, one-to-one instruction and intervention. That's where they're comfortable with. And we can provide that as well, where they're just paired up with a teacher or a volunteer tutor who... Um, has a, an expertise in the area that that the learner really needs to focus on, and so there's it's very different from what adults experienced going through a traditional classroom setting, and it's much more personal. So, Christiane, if I'm a a, a new learner, uh, if I haven't done this before, I might uh, I might feel a little intimidated still. Sure. Um, what would be what would you say to that new learner in terms of experience of what they could expect? And I mean, you've painted a picture of us in terms of all the services and how broad they are, but that can seem overwhelming to some folks who've never, who haven't done this or haven't been not in this environment. So what would you say to them from that learning experience perspective? I would say, first of all, that this is a safe space that's designed for adults who are just like them. So we are, we are a welcoming, accessible, diverse, inclusive place specifically designed for people who sometimes they have to, you know, take it upon themselves. And we recognize what a big step walking through that door is. This is what we do. You're going to encounter individuals, teachers, professionals who are non-threatening, casual, welcoming. This is what they've chosen to do. And they're going to create an experience that has no judgment, that helps you move to the next step in ways that provide all the support for you to feel accomplishment and be successful in what you're trying to reach. There you go, folks. So if you're if you're a new learner and you have any hesitation, there's a lot of safety in Christiane's message today. So we want you to check that out. And if you have any hesitation, talk and 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 get some more insight on this. Now, uh, from a community perspective. Uh, for folks who are listening today to our our conversation, how could they support the Kingston Literacy and Skills? 
specific ways they can support. One is to get involved in terms of volunteering. So for many, many years, we had almost no full-time employees. We were a volunteer-driven agency until we got well into the 90s when grant money started to flow and buildings started to get established. But volunteers were our foundation and have been for a long, long time. We utilize volunteers in lots of ways. That can be in that one-to-one tutoring session. That can be volunteers who come in and talk to our newcomers to Canada about what it's like to be here, who share music and experiences. We have volunteers who come do guest speaking from whatever their professional lives are and and introduce that aspect of community to our newcomers to Canada. So really, we need volunteers to come and engage with us, not just in an instructional sense, but also sharing what it's like to be part of the Kingston community, the surrounding communities, to our language learners and our newcomers. The other way we need volunteers is to support KLNS through donations. So if they're interested, if they're willing to do that, um, we don't currently actively fundraise. You know, pre-COVID, that was something our agency did for a long time. Now we're we're comfortable operating for the most part on you know the grant funding that we receive, but there's always those special projects that come along or those learners who need a little bit more assistance with, say, technology or We have a new group that we want to reach out to. And so donations, whether monetary or things like reading materials and manipulatives, they're always welcome. That's that's fantastic. Hopefully some folks who are looking for volunteer or they can help out uh, in other ways will be able to do that uh, by listening to our, our chat today. Now, listen, I've drilled you with questions. And usually as the last thing say, Hey, is there anything you would like to say that that maybe I might not have asked you or, or that you'd like to uh, drive home as a point of anything that we talked about today uh, before we close off our conversation? Really, it's just to raise a little bit of awareness about what we do. Um, like I said, often that word literacy can can seem like a little bit daunting or this isn't a place for me. Um, truly, Kingston Literacy and Skills is It's an open space for anyone. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know what, I'm set. I'm not in that place in my life anymore where I feel like I need training or upgrading is to think a little bit outside of the box and and, and consider how we could help support who you are, where you are as an employer, as a friend, as a parent, as a we're a community agency. So we welcome referrals from employers who are looking to be able to upgrade their employee skills in a, in a cost-effective and really professional way. We get referrals from family members who say, my friend, my grandchild, my niece is trying to get into this apprenticeship program, this college program. They're not feeling confident. Can you help them out? Mm. So it's not just a place to think, that's great, but I don't need that. It's truly to raise a little bit of awareness to say, Think about how we can support where you are. That is our role as a community agency. And if we don't have what we're looking, what, what you're looking for, our other responsibility there is to refer you and make connections to similar agencies who might. So we don't do things like job training at ours, but we can give you an introduction to partners who do provide that. So if you're not even sure how to get started, 
we're not a bad place to ask some questions. And it sounds too good to be true. Like it's just such a, such a versatile um, opportunity for folks. And I like the fact that you said it's not just for the individual. It could be for the employers as well as, as we try to help folks out. So Christiane, thanks again for being on the show and we'll have all your information in the podcast notes. Okay, we've come to that part of the show where I usually share with you a story or an article. And today I'm sharing with you an entry called The Hybrid Office Struggle. You can read it also at guidoprino.com forward slash blog. While the workforce landscape changed, not all decision makers read the room as they aimed for first to post on pre-pandemic return to office prize ribbons. Some companies are seeing an employee pushback, while others fail at blending 2019 normal with 2022 work-life balance efficiencies and success. In December 2021, I wrote in a return to office prehistoric flashback that if the desire and belief to return to the pre-pandemic inefficiency and waste is a marker for Received success over the pandemic itself, then we will have learned little outside the medical science of COVID-19. That remains a true challenge as leaders oversteer return to office solutions like a Formula One race car with wet tires on a sunny day. In a world where data is a valuable commodity that can influence profit and performance, remote work data hasn't quite become the foundation for hybrid models in a way that reflects all the pandemic workday lessons learned. Industry data companies continue to share that feedback. Microsoft, a trusted office efficiency technology company, released five key findings in 2022, great expectations making hybrid work work that provides supporting insights on the hybrid business world and leaders pining for the good old days might be pushing back on these trends as much as remote workers who are woke to the mutual benefits. When an employee looked at work in the context of the space they utilize at the office, material things like office space, equipment, and window views might have been perks that influenced priorities. As workers transition to remote work, the perks shifted from office space materials to health and family balance. 53% of employees are more likely to prioritize health and well-being over work than before the pandemic, reports Microsoft in this study. Employees are asking a simple question. Is it worth going into an office to do work that I can do just as or even more effectively and efficiently at home while also having a better health and family life? If the answer is no, they're not buying into the necessity for pre-pandemic normal to satisfy reasons outside of their benefit structure. Microsoft identified the top five reasons employees left their job. One, mental health. Two, work-life balance. Three, COVID risks. Four, lack of confidence in the leadership. Five, lack of flexible work hours and location. Comparatively, failed recognition or lack of raises was lower on the list, whereas in the past it would have been much higher. The trend continues to favor those companies who are supporting more remote work opportunities than in-office as 68% of workers have or are planning to move so they can continue to work remotely. There are also two trends tied to leadership tangled in value and virtue. The first is that managers are being caught between employee expectations and leadership mandates. Microsoft reported that over half, 54% of managers, feel leadership at their company is out of touch with employee expectations. 74% say they don't have influence over resources they need to make changes on behalf of their team. So, in the process of grasping at the way things used to be, managers are being caught between 
the frontline realities, and the backroom idealists. In addition to managers influencing positive culture by understanding employee needs and maintaining current success, if there is a need to have some employees return to an office, the value must be communicated and the journey to the office made worthwhile. Microsoft reported that 38% of hybrid employees say their biggest challenge is knowing when and why to come into the office. It's clear that not everyone needs to be in an office for continued success. It's also clear that the tools and means for flexibility are proven. Executives must empower their leadership teams and use the feedback to design the hybrid models accordingly. As the remote technology proved its worth, maintaining and exceeding deliverables, it also demonstrated that meeting culture had not changed. Microsoft reported that since February 2020, the average Teams users saw a 252% increase in their weekly meeting time, and the number of weekly meetings increased 153%. So, while flexibility was achieved in work location, it didn't necessarily translate to workload and effort. That alone should be a head-scratcher for any leader who still ties their anchor to the SS office minnow in opposition of remote work and viable hybrid models. Flexibility needs to include an understanding of the work culture itself, and that has been a challenge with decades of regurgitated solutions as leaders come and go along with the centralization and decentralization of technologies across all industries. The requirement to truly understand people is at the core of flexibility success. Ensuring that people are understood and that the relationships continue to grow within and across teams has been one of the bigger challenges of remote work. It will continue to grow as an issue if leaders are incapable of bringing together hybrid and in-office workers. Microsoft reported that 66% of respondents say doing informal coffee chats virtually feels like more of a chore than an in-person get-together. That said, the tools are in place to support the hybrid model, providing that some fundamentals like trust, Transparency, open communication, honesty, and integrity are demonstrated in a genuine and sincere manner. Relationship building must and can evolve if the organization is willing to support the culture to do it. The hybrid work model might be one of the easiest, most efficient, and effective changes to how people work in the last hundred years. While the past was marked by technology advances that made everyday living easier, the last two years has catapulted society to a new way of working that has eliminated geographic boundaries, shown the positive impacts to the environment, increased people's capability for better health, and brought families closer together. The change was so long overdue that nature seemingly forced it on the world. The only real question is, are the decision makers listening or still struggling with hybrid work plans on Foolscap paper. This is an opinion article by me, Guido Perino, of the Monthly Social Podcast. We're approaching the end of the show. Hope to see everybody in October. Let's take it out with Jay Douglas and Darlin, I'm yours. My love and respect to the wanderers, Budas and Clive, and our gratitude to the Blues Busters, Philip James and Lloyd Campbell. I'm yours. Don't leave me. I'm yours. It's true. I'm yours. Don't leave me. I belong to you. Stars. Buddy.
Oh! 